0: Champagne, it's plain as it could be, they thought of you and me, the night they invented Champagne, they absolutely knew, that all we'd want to do, is fly to the sky on Champagne, and shout to everyone inside, that since the world began, a woman and a man, I've never been as happy as we are tonight.
1: Welcome to the Best Picture Cast. I'm your host, Kieran B. I completed my goal of watching every Oscar Best Picture winner ever and decided to start a podcast to review each one. Each episode, myself and revolving co-hosts will discuss, assess, and evaluate a different Best Picture winner with the goal to establish a ranking for the entire list. This is not a who-should-have-won podcast. We're here to discuss the inner circle of movies who took home the crown in their respective years. As a disclaimer, this is an opinion based podcast and a subjective discussion by movie enthusiasts who don't claim to be trained experts. If we destroy your favorite movie or praise a movie you think is trash, we encourage you to write us in at our email. And our email is bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. That's bestpicturepodcast at yahoo.com. You can find us on any of our social media accounts, whether that be Twitter, whether that be Facebook. Letterbox, Instagram. We are at Best Picture Cast. That's at Best Picture Cast. You'll find us that way. And we are back. We're back yet again to discuss a a Best Picture winner. It's been a few weeks since we've done such between our between our horror movie winners and our sub fifty winners and our top tens. We are back on the Best Picture hunt here. And we are back living in the 50s. We've been doing quite a few 50s movies here in this uh, this Season 3 run. And I have a couple very special guests coming our way tonight. One of them is sitting right next to me, and the other one is sitting on the other side of the world. And I will start with uh, the gentleman sitting right next to me, and you've heard his voice uh, quite a bit. He's been on the last few here, and he's Joey R. Joey, how are we doing today?
0: Uh, doing great. You know, coming off the last two were my picks for wins, so um, that was exciting. But very happy to get back into the Best Picture winners, get back into the 50s and musicals and... All just, that good stuff, right? I'm real excited. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where to go without spoiling the next two hours. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
1: and um, we have also with us here today, uh, you may uh, know her from her presence on uh, Film Twitter or she's... Popped up quite a bunch of times on on this podcast, Best Picture cast. Her name comes up often in the question section, and she also joined us for our Oscar preview for the uh, the twenty twenty one Oscars. She is Zita Short. Zita, how are we doing today?
2: Oh, I'm doing so well, and I'm really happy to be on.
1: Yes, we're really happy to have you too. You're joining us all the way from New Zealand, and um, we're going to be talking about a movie from France, and that is Gigi.
2: Well, sort of from France, from Hollywood, but
1: <laughs> pretending. Yes. That's right. A little a little France, a little Southern California, you know, a little mix mix of the two. This is an interesting movie here. It's uh we're back in the musical world with the best, best picture cast. We haven't done one of these in, in a little while here. And this is one, Zita that you kind of um I wanna say you that you selected it because you've just express interest in it in the past. And it was one that we had on the back burner. And when it was time to, to do this, I, I definitely wanted to ask you to hop in for it. Talk to us a little bit about your first experiences with, with Gigi and why this movie kind of um, interests you.
2: Well, like you, I sort of set a goal for myself a couple of years ago where I said, I'm going to see every best picture winner ever. And this was one of the ones that I had never heard of before. I thought, oh, Gigi, and then I looked it up, it had won nine Academy Awards, it was a huge hit back in 1958, and it's one of those films that has left no cultural impact. I'm aware of the fact that in (laughs) cinephile circles, people are aware of it, but compared to Singing in the Rain or The Sound of Music, people just haven't heard of this one. And so I thought going into it, wow, it must be amazing. To have won so many awards and then we'll get into it. But the first scene <laughs> is oh, a real oh. trip where you go, oh you said. Oh my. Uh, oh, yes. No, so my god. god. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh,
1: um, you so, beat me to it. <laughs> so but before we get right into that, because I mean that that we're gonna start right there. But Ooh. um I do wanna Joey, this is a first watch for you.
0: First watch for me, yeah. And you know, I'm I'm on record. Um I love musicals. I love the musicals are fun. Zita and I, for her podcast last week, spoke about uh, Brigadoon, Uh, you know, a fun movie that also left very little impact. But this was... We'll get into it. But I had never seen it. I had... All I had ever seen from it was the first song. Right. The very upsetting, (laughs) pedophile written song. So going into it, I knew nothing else but that. And from our American Paris episode. I have not been so kind to Leslie Karen. So that was coming back here. So there there was a lot. So I was excited to watch it and I'm really excited to talk about it.
1: Yeah, here here at Best Picture Cast, you're kind of like our officer of um of of deviance and and uh, and policing uh, sociopaths. So you, yeah, it's most like my real life. You're you're always on guard to to go after these people. And I think about from what I understand, Joe. I think like about seven minutes into this one, your first watch was almost your last watch.
0: Yeah, no, th- <laughs> I almost pulled an RDB. I almost just half watched. I turned it off, read the Wikipedia synopsis, and just talked enough that I made it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my! But
0: yeah, I had a, I've never actually done that before for any movie where. About 20 minutes in, I was like, I'm not in the right headspace for this. I need to revisit this tomorrow. I started it sat... Now, with all all transparency, my son had a cold Saturday. Um, he's completely fine. It, it went away very quickly. So, you know, I didn't sleep that great Friday night. So starting this at like 10 o'clock Saturday, about a half hour in, I was like, nope, nope,
1: nope. <laughs> Came back to it Sunday. Wildly different experience. So for me, I probably saw this one like right out of college, like right in the beginning. And I, uh, you know, I, I uh, the first scene really hits you right away. Ooh. And this was, you know, this was God, I mean, over 10 years ago. So, um, I remember being like, wow, this is, uh, this is kind of creepy watching it this time. I was just, I think I texted you. I'm like, Whoa. And it takes, <laughs> I usually don't text or talk about these movies <laughs> at all while we're doing these right. things, but I just, I just texted Joey and me. And it was like I forgot how problematic this was. Yeah, like it, it's, it's a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, me and you have never once spoken about a movie beforehand, and
1: we had to be like, all right, stop. Yeah, because yeah. I, I want to ask you, too, Zito, When was the before, before here prepping for this? When was the last time you saw Gigi?
2: Well, I had to watch it again because I had to write an article about it. So that would have been. Oh. I think six months ago, around that time. And so seeing it again, I do think I was able to appreciate some aspects of it more. And I think we'll get into that where the production design and the costume design is very impressive. But I definitely didn't find myself thinking... Oh, it's not nearly as problematic as I remember it being, and I was just <laughs> overreacting. No, I, I think people are completely justified in being horrified by a lot of the things.
1: That... <laughs> yeah, it's it's becoming more problematic by the second. <laughs> I know, I feel, I feel guilty that
0: I'm not going to torch it this entire time, that there are things I liked about it, enjoyed about it, where, you know, because I think we all know I find... I find problems when there are problems sometimes, and this is just—they hit you in the face with it. They—they they don't even let you breathe.
1: Yeah, let's. Uh, I mean, let's say too, and just in in putting the info out for this, a uh, film Twitter does not like this movie. Um, no. I don't know if you saw that, Cita.
2: Yes, people are very anti-Gigi again for understandable reasons, and we'll also get into it. But it comes out in 1958, and I think a lot of people question why. This was the movie that won all of the awards. When you have these other mm. classics that came out,
1: yeah, and, and it kind of it it always when people throw out the worst best picture winner tag, there's always another nominee, popular nominee that's like tied there with it. You know, when it's with Oliver, it's 2001: A Space Odyssey. In this instance, I think it is. Uh, you look at it. I mean, my friend, My Fair Lady is tied up with um, Doctor Strangelove, Strangelove, so there'll be another one there. Those are just two cubic examples, but we have a, a, a Hitchcock example here with Vertigo in the mix. And, you know, we'll talk about the other nominees at the very end of this thing. But I have to think that for a while there, that probably had something to do with it also.
2: Yes, it probably did. And I just think bringing it up, it's very easy to say, well, this is the pro pedophilia movie, and that's why I <laughs> despise it. And I think describing something like the great Ziegfeld, which is so dull, just impossible to get mm. through, but I think it's more difficult to throw out an easy justification for why it's so awful. It's just boring. Mm.
1: Yeah, and... Um I think you have probably two of the easier, easier critics on this movie here with you because I, I have a, I have a feeling when we get to ranking this thing at the end of the season, I think our other friends, uh, oh, they're going to rant and Artie and Christie are not going to be as friendly as me and Joey are going to be mean, today. Artie, Ar- 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 Ar-
0: talking about this might be the most entertaining thing that is ever put yeah, on a podcast. We'll have,
1: we'll have to see. I mean, they they're. Let's just say they're not going to let the costumes enthrall them. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pedophile plus grooming, I mean, it's, it's just, it's the long con of disturbing behavior.
1: Yeah, there's, there's some issues going on here. I have to start just by saying this here. It just kind of like a BPC history thing, more or less. We recorded, and I know Zita, you are not the biggest baseball fan I would, I would get, I don't know that, but I, I would just gonna wager to say. We recorded our first episode ever, The Departed, myself and Artie B, we recorded that all, Game 7 of the World Series in 2019. So, the, you know, we do our little World Series intro every uh, every time we do it, a deep dive to the year, and uh, I just have to say that right now we are recording this during Game 2 of the World Series here in 2021, and my Atlanta Braves are playing, you know, so I'm a little more <laughs> interested this year than I was when the Nationals and the Astros played, but because it's the Braves <laughs> and the Astros here, we do have the game on in the background, Zita, so if you see the jump up and burst or don't be startled here we just um there's there's things on the line you know
2: Oh, the astros are dodgy right there was some scandal <laughs> yeah they're,
1: yes they're uh they're a bunch of slimy cheaters here so that's yeah. um okay. you know that's that's uh they're they're the, the braves are definitely the good guys here this time around i have uh for once have the the country on my side here
0: quite dodgy i love that <laughs> you always say things so much better That's
1: right. <laughs> yes and the uh, the dodgy dodgers are out after the Braves eliminated them so uh, hopefully all of this ages <laughs> as well and and i'll be drinking champagne and celebrating the day they invented champagne when the uh hopefully the Braves win this thing i think by the time this airs we probably will know an answer we'll know how that statement is aged um so let's go back to talking about things that have not aged great and um, that's going to be the intro of this movie here. Before we get there, before we do the full deep dive, um, Zita, it's, what is it, about one o'clock in the afternoon over there?
2: Yes, this is.
1: Yeah, around one. Okay. So I don't know. I, I would imagine you're not probably not partying over there, but it's a nice evening uh, here in, in New York. So we're going to just talk about what we're drinking here today. Uh, Joey, why don't you go first? Yeah. So um, same as the Poltergeist episode, I'm drinking the
0: Great South Bay Mist Baja Explosion Nice sour ale brewed with lemon, lime, cherry, and raspberry. Excellent local brewery. Great beer. Nice sour for the match the feelings of this movie.
1: Yeah, that's great. I had to go French here. I had to go with the French name. Now, it's French-Canadian, so it's not great. I think I did something similar with the American in Paris yeah. episode here. But I have uh, from, the, from the Unibrew brewery, it is their Ephemere Apple. And it's often sometimes served in a champagne bottle. So I okay. did a little double time there. What do you say? Are we ready to uh, to deep dive this thing? Zita, do we have any uh, anything we want to get out there before we, uh, we do the plunge?
2: No, I think we can jump right into it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. And uh, I do want to give you a chance here to just plug your podcast. And that is the 300 Passions podcast. Why don't you tell people a little bit about that? We'll plug it at the end as well and know how to reach out to you and stuff.
2: Yes, so we discuss American romantic movies on this podcast, and we've had a lot of the Best Picture Cast hosts on as guests. And as Joe referenced, he was recently on for an episode about Brigadoon, the Gene Kelly musical. So we do a lot of films like that, where the old Hollywood musicals, and yes, there's just a lot of variety in terms of the films that get discussed. And you can find it on Anchor and a variety of other podcast hosting platforms.
1: That's fantastic. And I know our Grant Z, uh, as we record this, his, his episode on uh, Say Anything just dropped uh, today. So that's that's exciting too. And I'll be on with you soon to do, um, and this is an interesting Best Picture cast connection because in one of our earliest episodes, and I think this is one of your earlier your earliest mentions of, uh, of Zeta in this mix is we were doing the other nominees for the Rain Man episode, and myself and Chris G kind of just mocked one of them based on its name. <laughs> we knew absolutely nothing about it. We've never seen it. And I think uh, Zeta reached out to me like the next day that it aired and just went, how dare you? This is one of my favorite movies. So yes. um, it's or, or your know, movie that you really like. And that was The Accidental Tourist. So the Accidental Taurus is on that list, so I'm going to eat my words and hop on and do that one with you. That oh, be I love
0: it. Love it. Yeah, it's, it's big, yes. big fun doing the 300 yeah. Passions. So Accidental Taurus, really going back to the Rayman Man episode, that's
1: hysterical. Yeah. And uh, I got that right, uh, Zita. That is, one, that is a, a movie you care, you care a lot about, right?
2: Yes. It's a big favorite in my household. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So,
1: yeah, that's, uh, I look forward to doing that. It's 300 Passions podcast. You can check that out. So I think it is time to, uh, to head back. To head back to 1958, are we ready to go? Let's do it. So the year is indeed 1958, and the U.S. president was Dwight D. Eisenhower. That D stands for, do you know what, Joe? The D? Delano. No. No, Delano would be, uh, that's um, Franklin. Oh, Franklin. D, yeah, FDR. Yeah, right. So uh, DDE, the D is David. So Dwight D. Eisenhower, also known as Ike, the D is for David there. And uh, on July 29th in 1958, Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, effectively establishing NASA. So, kind of a, a significant year in American history. There, we have the 1958 World Series, and it was another year where the Braves were in the World Series. So, we get a little oh, uh, a little tip of the cap there. I like that. Uh, Back then, however, they were known as the Milwaukee Braves. They wouldn't move to Atlanta until 1966. Unfortunately, though, this would be a World Series that they would lose, and they would lose to the New York Yankees. Boo, boo, boo. (laughs) Uh, And they'd do that in seven games. The Bronx Bombers would win games five, six, and seven to clinch the championship. The matchup was a repeat of the 1957 World Series, and this would be the first year that New York would have only one baseball team, because the Dodgers and Giants both moved out. So the Yankees were the, oh, wow. uh, yeah, they were the lone team in New York. It would remain that way until 1962, when the Mets joined the fray, the New York Mets. Uh, Yankees were managed by Hall of Famer Casey Stengel, and the MVP of the series was Bob Turley. I got a couple uh, Stephen King connections here with 1958 as well. Always um, love that. Yeah, nineteen fifty eight is the uh, is the is the summer of nineteen fifty eight is the setting for the novel It. So, so that's the uh, that's the summer that the clown wreaks havoc in uh, in Maine, and uh, also another Stephen King novel, Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three is a time traveling novel. That's uh, the September of fifty eight is the date that the time traveling portal drops. Oh, the lead really? Character I don't I don't at. know yes, this story. And he okay. bets on this World Series this year here. Um, to, oh, wow. That's really? so how he gets his money down there. Oh, you know, shit. You know, has, has the, uh oh. Are you familiar with uh, either It or 112263,
2: Zito? I am definitely familiar with It, but I think Carrie is the only Stephen King novel that I've read.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it obviously has the uh, the blockbuster, blockbuster adaptation you near know, a couple of years ago. Eleven twenty two sixty three. I think was adapted onto Hulu. It's uh, James Franco starring in it. Really? Yeah. Well, I didn't know so, that. Um, I don't know that story at it, all. The, Interesting. The novel okay. is way better than the adaptation. I'll say that.
0: <laughs> and it was a movie on Hulu. Uh,
1: yeah, it was like a. Uh, it, was, it was like a limited series. I okay. think it's like a, it's like six or seven one episodes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the number one song of nineteen fifty eight was. Here we go. We got another yes. mouthful here. It was Voler nel blu di pinto de blu by, Domenico. Murungio, Morungo, right? I I did, nailed I was, it. Did I get it? All right. Cool. Good. Yeah, I fully support um, that. I'm more familiar with the Dean Martin version. It's uh, Voleri, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Voleri is how it's said, by the way. Not what actually, <laughs> well, I say, Volare.
0: Well, I clearly don't know because I was fully supportive of you. Okay, I yeah, don't even know vol- the Dean
1: one. Once I once I got the, got it to a, a tune. Um, other notable hits of that year include "Return to Me" by that same Dean Martin. Uh, it's Only Make-Believe by the great Conway Twitty. Rockin' Robin by Bobby Day. It's <laughs> wonderfully featured in The Office as Andy's uh, ringtone. Uh, the Purple <laughs> People Eater by Sheb Wooley. Oh. A karaoke favorite, Tequila, by The Champs. As you'll see that one in uh, Pee Wee Harmon as he dances on oh, the Tyra, bar. And, Iconic uh, scene. Sandlot, I think he's in as well. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, a, a song we mentioned and led off one of our recent episodes, Twins With, Yakity Yak by The Coasters. So more yakity Yak talk here at Best Picture Cast. Wow, yakity Yak coming up twice in three episodes. Don't talk back. Uh, Gigi is the Best Picture winner of the year 1958. It was directed by Vincente Minnelli. It was produced by Arthur Freed, adapted screenplay by Alan J. Lerner. Uh, the songs were done by Alan Lerner and Frederick Lowe. It's based on a 1944 novella of the same name by Colette. The score was by Andre Previn, the cinematography by Joseph Ruttenberg. Film editing by Adrian Fezan. And the costume design by Cecil Beaton, the legendary Cecil Beaton. Gigi is starring Leslie Caron, Maurice Chevalier, Louis-, Louis Jordan, Hermione Gingold, Eva Gardner, and Isabel Jeans. Was nominated for nine Oscars. It was the winner of all nine of those Oscars, wow. setting a record at the time. That record would be broken the following year by Ben-Hur. Uh, those Oscars included Best Picture, Best Director, Vincente Minnelli. Best Writing Adapted Screenplay, Alan J. Lerner. Best Cinematography Color, Joseph Ruttenberg. Best Art Set Direction. Best Costume Design, Cecil Beaton. Best Film Editing, Adrian Fazan. Best Original Song of Lerner and Lowe of Gigi. And the best score by Andre Previn. So there we go. Quite a mouthful there. Won all nine of its awards. It was nominated for the other movies. It's the first one to do that. The first clean sweep one that we've covered here. Yeah, I mean, Um, that's really impressive. Yeah, that's not counting Grand Hotel, which just was nominated for one and won the only one. But for
0: for. for nine?
1: Yeah. Yeah, The other movies that won every Oscar award they were nominated for were Wings. It happened one night, The Last Emperor. And Zeta, I think a movie that you have boldly proclaimed your least favorite Best Picture winner, and that is Lord of the Rings Return of the King.
2: Uh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was a big celebration there that year for uh, all those awards that that won.
0: I've never seen that. I've never seen any of the Lord of the Rings. This BPC will be my intro into that.
2: Ah, gosh. A lot to sit through.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're
1: not getting me hyped for it. Hopefully that's like a season six (laughs) <laughs> That's right. So, uh, Gigi, where do we begin? I'll let you. Um, I'll let you start us off here, Zita. Um, if you want to just kind of talk about the uh, the this uh, introduction here to this one, as we meet our friend Honoré. Honoré.
2: Yes. So, I suppose I'll just briefly talk about some of the background to the film, where this was adapted from a novella written by Colette, who was a very popular French writer. It's set at the turn of the century during the Belle Époque period. And this film adaptation tries to convince you that, oh, isn't life grand? Isn't everything in Paris so beautiful? And so you have this older gentleman. He is a roué, I think they would say. You get the sense that he has been a a womanizer for many years. But now he's fairly elderly. We see him walking along. He's talking about how fantastic Paris is. We are seeing some of the sites already, but then you can clearly tell that they're cutting between on-location shots of Paris and then Maurice Chevalier (laughs) on a set. So it's sort of strange that you have these very obvious cuts between two different locations. But he decides to launch into the first song of the film, which is entitled Thank Heaven for Little Girls, and he leads us into it by... He makes some strange comment about the fact that, oh, older women are hideous. And then one walks by him and she pauses strangely and he frowns at her. He makes a face of disgust. So immediately, I think from a modern viewer's perspective, you turn against him because he is an elderly man. It's not like he's a spring chicken and he's displaying a pretty obvious form of, sexism by doing that and then he's singing this song and you are immediately creeped out because he's not talking about even teenage girls he's talking about little girls of 5 or 6 or 7 and then he references the fact that their little eyes are so helpless and appealing which is also disturbing and You have shots of these little girls and he's sort of staring at them and you're meant to find it charming. I think you're meant to see him as this avuncular older man who appreciates the spirit and passion of young girls, but it can't help but come across as something creepy where it seems like he is physically attracted to them And it's just wrong. It immediately rubs you up the wrong way. And then he decides to introduce us to Gigi, who is the titular character. She's a young woman, a teenager, and she's noted for being outgoing. She's a bit more of a a ruffian than some of her peers. And she needs to be taught to become a a high society lady.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, there. We'll, I want to start off with with Maurice uh, Chevalier here, who's playing Henri, and I I think that, you know, when it comes to this movie, I think that there's, I mean, listen, there's no way to watch the first part of this movie and not be completely alarmed with what's going on, and it's I, I it's not just the song; it's every as you said, Zita. It's Everything he's explaining and describing coming into that, it, it's like, whoa, this is like, this is out there. And I, I my second viewing here, where where I rewatched it today, I kind of like I, I looked at the movie in a slightly different lens. And I think when if you if you play around with the context of what's going on here and and kind of see some of the artistry that they were doing, it becomes a little bit easier to watch and a little a little more palatable if you just kind of. From the start, view him as the shit heel villain. Like if you just if you just look at it like this guy is like the Joker, this guy's like a sinister, evil bad guy. If you watch the movie that way, it, it all the whole movie begins to make a little more sense. Hmm. Um, and I think once I started doing that, I think I kind of like was able to enjoy it a little easier. I mean, what, what, what do you think about that, Joe?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think very quickly this guy is clearly the shit heel. When he's talking about, oh, like in Younger Girls, I'm thinking, all oh, right, he's talking about like 25-year-olds. <laughs> like, all right, you're old, you're kind of a creep, but like, whatever. And then next thing, he's singing this song. Oh, about, yeah, he
1: specifies five, six, right. seven. Well, then, it's like, oh! then he
0: gets into it. And then there's this, you know, he's staring at this little girl singing about what are little boys to do while this five-year-old girl is like eating a lollipop and he's just like lustfully looking at her. And I'm like, what are, what are what are we doing? <laughs> and it was... You know, and I, I think sometimes I get made fun of for pointing things out that maybe, you know, you have to catch with. But this was, they... Oh, they're teeing it up for you here. Right. They, they're just, it's it's wild. Because coming into it, before the song one I did not think that they were going to come in hot with the pedophile song. But I actually didn't mind the cuts between, you know, on scene and it. Because I, I thought it looked cool. I thought they were building a nice world. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, this is good. And then when he
1: scoffed at the old woman, not even an old woman, and... Adult. He yeah. he scouted an adult. Yeah, I should mention too that there's um this was not an easy movie for them to film. They had a lot of uh, a lot of issues because it was a short time frame where they had to do it. We're they used a sure. lot of authentic locations, and this was one of them. This that is an actual park that's actually very very busy uh, in modern day at this time. So just to get that whole thing cleared and to film what they were filming there was very difficult for them to do. So then they of course like as you said, they had to piece in some set some set pieces and they do that kind of throughout but there's a few scenes like there's a museum an authentic museum that they use that ice rink was an actual spot that was cool There's a bunch of there's a bunch of the visuals here in the set designs that really that really worked for me
0: absolutely and i i you know i was looking into a lot of the other sets um i purposely didn't look up this park because i didn't want to be this this felt like the creepy park so i just avoided it (laughs) um but like a lot of the other places that they do i i thought were really cool and i thought they did a really good job of building feeling like france i mean they invented like geographical time travel in this movie for later stuff, but yeah, I, th- I think that all worked. It's just when you have a creep right in the middle in a fancy suit, I did enjoy him breaking the fourth wall. But I think that, but you're right, Kieran. He has to be the heel, or else
1: this, this you're bad for watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just not often where the narrator is kind of the 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 you know the the adversary. He's not really an adversary, but he's. He's the source of of distraction for the for the lead characters here, and he's he's not a clearly not a good guy, and and I don't think that the movie really well while it portrays him as charming, I don't think that the movie portrays him as a good guy. This is going to go back to like Grand C's Wolf of Wall Street conversation. Like, is it is it glorifying him or is it that's kind of like this laying out for you that this guy is not a very good guy? I don't know. What do you think about that, Zita?
2: So I think. It- It's an issue with the film and with a lot of these Hollywood musicals that they take these stories that have these very disturbing, dark undertones. And I think the issue is they don't really do anything to address them. They just put it on screen. Mm. And I don't think you do get a clear sense of interpretation in this film. It feels like they just went, oh, this novella, it's popular Let's bring it to the screen, it'll give us an opportunity to put Leslie Caron in some pretty outfits and we're going to be able to shoot on location in Paris. And I don't think they really thought about the story, they just treat it as though no, this is just the framing device that allows us to get to some songs. And I know on our Brigadoon episode we talked about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers which is another musical that has a very disturbing plot where it's based on a story called The Rape of the Sabine Woman, and they tried to repackage that, this story about boys kidnapping young girls and then Stockholm syndroming them into convincing them that they want to marry their kidnappers, and that's a really bright, sunny musical in tone, and they just attempt Mm -hmm. to paper over all of the moral quandaries that the central plot brings up. And I think Gigi has a similar problem where it, does, it fails to connect with any of the ideas that it's trying to address. And I think the most obvious point of comparison is Pygmalion, which is the George Bernard Shaw play. And then that was obviously adapted into My Fair Lady. And I know a lot of reviews for Gigi because My Fair Lady was a big hit On Broadway at the time said that this was essentially just a rip-off of My Fair Lady and it was just Mm. MGM trying to make some money off of that story and I think Pygmalion the play does a really good job of being a class critique and making a lot of points about how the upper classes are ridiculous for being snobs and their efforts to mock the lower class and keep them down are horrific And I think My Fair Lady, again, gets rid of that context and tries to convince you that, no, 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 you should root for Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison to get together, even though he's emotionally abusing her for a lot of the film and there's not really a romantic connection between them. And I think this film has a similar issue where you're never on Gaston's side, we'll get to it, but his motives throughout uh yeah. suspect.
1: Yeah, and that, that reminds me a little bit too what you're saying with the with the uh taking kind of darker themed tales and just kinda of dressing them up music. It's get we'll see that sometimes with the, the, those Disney animated um movies too where they'll take like old darker uh darker fairy tales or whatnot and then just kinda of spruce them up with, uh, Make with them pretty some songs. Mm. You know.
0: Yeah, I I thought honoree very much like almost like the devil trying to guide others in mm. the wrong direction. Yep. Like he would, like Yes, you're not siding with Gaston, but Gaston's, all right, this thing happened. We'll talk about it. You know what? I got to get away for a little bit. No, 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 no. You need to be out with a new girl every night. You need to be partying. Oh, oh, she might not. You know, I offered. She doesn't want to be with me. Oh, it's just negotiating. He's always trying to bring. He's just kind of an agent of chaos where, yes, Gaston is not the face here, but
1: where maybe at times he might be is definitely trying to pull him dark. You know what he, his character reminded me of a little bit in, in talking about Disney cartoons? Uh, he reminded me a little bit of the, uh, in, in Pinocchio... The the Honest John character, who's like the fox, who's like leading the boys to the oh. to the uh, to the Forbidden Island, who's and 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 nothing ever happens to him either. Right, just, just like Henri in this, he just kind of like he never gets his comeuppance. At the end of the movie, he just marches off into the sunset It's like, wow, that that asshole just he just got to do whatever the hell he wanted. to. Right, there are no consequences for Henri, which I
0: think. Yeah, but I think. He only felt like a main character, and like you said, Kieran, because he was the narrator. If you take out the narration, if you take out the fourth wall breaking, he's really a minor character.
1: Yeah. Now, so two of the major script additions here that Lerner did in the adaptation that he kind of got a lot, a lot of credit for, which just w- led to his Oscar, uh, the one was this this Henri character. In the book, he's kind of just this curmudgeon uncle that doesn't really play a major factor. So bringing right. him in the forefront and kind of painting him as the narrator... Was kind of one of the things that made the story a little more interesting, and then the other one was the the mom in in who we only hear singing horrifically oh. in the other room. They slam the, oh. yeah. <laughs> <They laughs> the door on her. Yeah, they slam the door on her is like the running joke. I mean, they shit on her that she's in, bad at it. <laughs> yeah, in the in the the uh, novella, she is like a major like presence where she's. Really like like coming down on Gigi, and it oh. kind of was like yeah, it it, it it added like an extra layer of negativity and darkness that they didn't want to have. In this, okay. they wanted to keep things a little lighter on that side of things. So that she, she, oh. they plug he plugged her out of it and just put made her kind of the comedic relief singing in the other room. I think that worked. Yeah, I think those yeah, two I those two additions was very worked.
0: effective with the um,
1: zita I wanted to ask you Maurice uh, Chevalier. He gets who, who plays Henri. He gets the honorary Oscar this year. At the awards for just a, a fifty years of of work in the in the industry, are you familiar with any of his other work?
2: Yes, I am, and I actually think he was probably cast because this movie is trying to evoke memories of Ernst Lubitsch comedies from the late twenties and early nineteen thirties, which did a similar thing where they would glamorize and romanticize Paris and they presented this heightened world where everybody was sleeping together all the time and getting into sexual misadventures. And so this movie tries to do a similar thing where, oh, isn't everybody having fun? They're all so well-dressed and sophisticated. And I do think one of the things that you notice in terms of the differences between the two is that filmmakers could be far less puritanical, it seems, in the 30s, and there was far more openness about sexual Mm. behavior. And you look at the 50s, this infamously uptight decade where everybody was denying the fact that some people don't want to enter into a marriage and do what they're told to do. And so I think it is an issue that they're trying to present this Gay, sexually liberated world in Gigi, at least from an outdated perspective, and yet it has to be this incredibly buttoned-up, conservative version of sexuality because they're selling it to fifties audiences.
1: Yeah, the Hays Code was a, was a major issue here yeah, had, with, with this fight with it, yeah. um, you know, and and uh, Arthur Fried the producer, really had to use his uh, his social power to make things work, and for all the same reasons that you just brought up, Zita, is that. Kind of like sexual liberation that was going on, and and in particularly with uh, the mistresses, right. you know, kind of glorifying mistresses if you can call it glorifying. I, I don't know, you know, or just or just kind of highlighting it, and and then you know, Joe, you brought up the grooming factor too, like grooming them to be mistresses and and whatnot there. So that I mean, as problematic as it is today, is like it ha- it had its problems back then too. And the the kind of product of that, Zita, as you mentioned, is that you get this conservative looking thing and they're talking around a lot of the issues. You have Henri explaining like, the, the people who get married and the people who don't get married without specifically saying like, well, these are the people who are just really mistresses or whatnot, or you have the, the one mistress like, winking at the bearded guy while he's with his wife. <laughs> the 50s, as you mentioned, there's either a very conservative time and right there still in the thick of the haze Code that they don't start to take the uh, the chains off of that until until the, the 60s there.
0: There's, Gaston has a funny line um, when, you know, when Gigi asks him about, you know, oh, you're with someone else every night. He goes and he says the only person that has someone new in their bed every night
1: is a liar. Is a liar. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. So I, I did want to just get your thoughts on this one because this is kind of one thing that I just in doing a little research, one, one thing that I, I heard. Mentioned about the Henri character, and I really liked it. Is is that he is meant to represent Paris? Okay, and if you view it as that he is this he is this charming, welcoming thing that's just having fun and and enjoying enjoying himself and and all the the luxuries and and lavishness of, of the city, and he is he's supposed to embody the city of Paris. Oh, that's and. Great. While it's charming and and affable and all that, it deep at its core is it's really kind of like ruining some of these people and it's just it's 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 leading a lot of these people into temptations that leave them in, in a place that, that isn't necessarily happy as we see. It's a bore. It is a bore. What do you think about that one, Zita?
2: Yes, I do think it's an issue that he is so unlikable and yet the film expects you to accept him as this cute, grandfatherly type who also happens to be a sex pest, and it it never really (laughs) works. And I think just, again, contrasting his portrayal in this film with his work in Lubitsch comedies, I do think you notice that he was an actor with limited range. I think he was more of an entertainer than an actor per se, and he's very hammy, he's very over the top, but I think in those films there's a certain self-awareness about the fact that some of his characters Mm. who are rather similar to Honour, Lachard, or however you pronounce it, are sort of moronic and you do have scenes in those films where his girlfriends get to poke fun at him. And so I think that really offsets it and in this movie there's none of that. I think you are asked to accept him as this good guy that everybody's on board with and It's also an issue that the story doesn't have much of a structure, at least in terms of how we traditionally think of our films work, where you have a three-act structure. I can definitely see this working in novella form, where, from what I understand, that novella is more about Gigi's experiences, and you're seeing things from her point of view, and it's an exploration of her inner world. Whereas in the film... I think it would work better if it was more of a Pygmalion thing where in that movie or the the adaptation of that play, it's all building up to her showing up at this high society event and trying to fool people into thinking that she's upper class. And I suppose they try to do that with this one where Gigi finally transforms and they go out on a big date. But it doesn't work quite as well. And especially during the first two acts, there's not much of a sense of forward momentum. It just seems like, oh, Gaston is bored. Now we're going to get another scene where he goes to visit Jar Gabor. And there's just a lot of sitting around. And I don't think Alan J. Lerner as a screenwriter is particularly good at his job. I know these were hugely hmm. successful musicals at the time but even My Fair Lady which was also a big deal you notice in that one that he has songs that spell out an idea and then basically ripped dialogue from Pygmalion that spells out that idea again and I think Gigi has similar issues.
1: Yeah I mean I- I remember looking, seeing yeah. that there's like three minutes left. I'm like, three minutes left? What the, are they going to wrap this thing up? Like, what are they, like this, 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 nothing's happened yet. You know, <laughs> like I do want to, before we, we're going to move on from this opening scene here, but I do, I do want to mention though, that there is some slick camera work in this thing. It does win the cinematography award. And, and, and there's a lot of little examples of this, of them kind of using the cameras to tell stories. But in kind of the intro to that song there, you see, you have the girls playing to the left there and they're, there's a lot of motion there. They're running in circles with Gigi in the center of it. And then to the right of the screen, you see the, the more established women who who are now either married or with... Right. And they're all still. No one's moving to the right of the screen. You know, it's showing you the progression left to right of how things start and how they end up. And whether it's Paris that does this to them or not, I just thought was interesting as well. So you can see a lot, a lot of little examples of that. Of using extras. There's a great use of extras in this in this film. Later on, you'll see when uh, they're kind of doing the walk into the room and everybody freezes and stops it's talking. my favorite scene. Yeah, good good, good stuff there. So I want to talk a little bit about the about the women in this thing here, Zita. Uh, you're kind of our uh, our actress expertise here. And I think the best place to start is, is with Leslie Karen. Uh, what did you think of her performance in this one, Zita?
2: So I know you've already done An American in Paris, and that was her first film role. And as you guys described, she was plucked out of obscurity, essentially, and told, hey, you're a French girl who has a background as a dancer, so now we're going to put you up against Gene Kelly, one of the most experienced musical actors in the world, and (laughs) you're going to have to act in a language that you're not really used to speaking in, and you have very little experience, but we're sure that you'll be fine and everything will turn out well. And I think you watch that film and it's very clear that you're seeing an unexperienced performer. She just seems stiff. She seems uncomfortable on screen. And I think seven years later, she was a far more experienced actress at this point. She seems far more comfortable on screen. And yet I, I can't help but feel like she does a lot of pantomiming in this film. And they are really trying to push the fact that this is a little girl. And Leslie Caron, very young, very youthful. I'm not suggesting that she looks old or something. (laughs) But I think she's really pushing the girlish mannerisms too hard. I don't think that any 12 or 13-year-old girl does quite as much preening. And she, she does a lot of gestures that just seem out of place. And I don't think she's ever charming enough. To inhabit this role, I I think you're really meant to sense that everybody who meets Gigi is immediately taken in by her and there's something infectious about her personality.
1: I want to ask too, how do we, it doesn't say how old she is, how old do we think that she is in this?
2: I think she's meant to be in her mid teens. At least that's how I felt, because I assume at that time, a woman of 18. Would have been married already, most likely. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that it's 1617, and not yeah, not like 13 or 14. Yeah, it has to be 16 or 17, or else I think I can't talk about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I like Leslie Mm Caron in this, especially. I mean, you know, anyone who's heard American in Paris, I wasn't super nice, and if you've heard, you know, when Brigadoon comes (laughs) out, I may also not have been super nice. But um, I, I really I thought I, I thought she was charming in here, especially I think a lot of the times there was flatness on the other side of her, and I think she really popped a few times where there were scenes where I could have otherwise been bored that I think she brought me into.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I I agree I I liked her in this. I mean I liked her in American Paris too. I mean I was you know a compliment to her there also. We mentioned that she doesn't do her singing here in, no. in this, she gets so dubbed. that's. Uh, that's a little tough. I never like to see that. The lip sync police were out out of it because she was <laughs> o- overdoing it too with the with the lip syncing. I actually think
0: Gaston was the worst. There the was a, mm-hmm. there was
1: kind of a lot of that going on here in this. The so lip sync police were were definitely active and busy. But yeah, we kind of have another situation like we did in Oliver, where the lead character there is not doing their own singing.
0: Well, she found out after. She sung.
1: Yeah, you could find the songs on the CD. Yeah, she well, yeah, she yeah, reco- yeah. she did yeah. a recording for the soundtrack. Yes. yes, they dubbed her over in this, and not great. But I I overall do like her in this. I think she fits the role well. This is a good seven years after seven American years. Paris. Yeah. So I think was she was uh, nineteen or twenty in that one, so oh. she's kind of in her mid to late twenties here. I was a fan of what she did here in this one. Um, how about uh, how about the other two uh, women here? Her her grandmother and her aunt. Grandmama. Played by uh, Hermoyne Gingold and uh, Isabel Jeans. What did you think about them?
2: Well, I think they're both character actressing, you could say. I do think they probably have the more vibrant characters and they get to introduce a lot of comedy. I think one of Caron's issues is that Gigi as a character is a bit of a blank slate. You are told a lot about how she's spirited and young and happy. But there's not a whole lot going on with her personality. And at least with the aunts, they are horrible people. We will discuss this where you get these scenes where they're talking about, hmm, so how are we going to sell off our very young niece hmm. who <laughs> definitely isn't prepared to get married? But how are we going to work this out, this financial transaction, so that it will benefit us? But at the same time, you are meant to see them as these charming older women and you get a scene where you find out that Chevalier's character was involved with one of them when they were younger and they have a little Mm. exchange. Again, I think that could have been played as something poignant if these characters had real depth, but because they don't, it just comes across as a a wacky comedic scene (laughs) And mm, I think that Yeah, so I, I really
1: liked I really liked that scene. Um I I liked it a lot. I, I liked the uh, I thought there was some charm there to it. I thought the two getting the two of them together and kind of reminiscing about this past that we haven't <laughs> as a as a viewer we don't know a, much it about. It was a
0: Friday. It was a Monday. <laughs> yeah yes,
1: yeah. Uh but outside of just like kind of the comedic element of the song, I thought that there was something nice about two aging actors who have had decades in the business and in a way they're almost reflecting on their careers a bit. And sure. I, I thought it was a really nice, I love the color tones that they did there. That was that scene. Um, it was one of my favorite scenes of the movie. I, I really, and I thought probably the strongest song in the movie. I want to say, what did you, what, what did you think about the music in general? Sita.
2: Ah, so this is interesting because I do think, thank heaven for little girls. If you don't, listen to the lyrics and take in how disturbing they are. That's sort of a catchy, charming tune. I don't think it's anything that could rival any of the songs in Singing in the Rain, but it Mm -hmm. it works on its own terms in terms of the beat and the melody and the rhythm. But then you have a bunch of other songs that are just sort of forgettable. Gigi won Best Original Song and... I barely remember it. I could I, I thought it was I, one of the worst songs yeah. you know, yeah. in the
1: whole thing. It's, we, we dealt this with um with going my way where the title track is the most forgettable song, in, a tough the, song. in the thing. And uh you know and you know what we dealt with this with an American in Paris too where the music was just forgettable as as you said Zita and I think that this kind of this was an improvement upon An American in Paris, as far as as that goes. I thought there were at least a couple tracks that were somewhat interesting to me that that stuck with me a little bit. But as a whole, I think Forgettable is is fair. Joe, what did you think about the songs? Yeah, I thought they were
0: tough. Honestly, my favorite songs was the... The gossip at Maxim's when the when the <laughs> crowd stops and like whisper sings into Maxim when he was in his, uh, into Gaston when he was in his internal monologue and then out singing, uh, she's just, she's not thinking of me. Like those two were the most memorable and I don't know that it was the songs that were memorable, or just the way they were portrayed because like a chorus, uh, like a whole crowd whisper singing gossip right after Honoré's, you know, narrates to us that the great bothered about Maxim is that nobody cares who you're with and then into that then into Gaston's you know she's not thinking of me with the you know girlfriend fiance Leanne and I, I, other than that like Gigi when I after I heard that I was like why did that win anything except <laughs> I think that was a very visually cool song where he was you know all over Paris I thought yeah, that cool was really cool work yeah great camera work I think there was great mm. camera work throughout this whole mm. thing again pretty
1: creepy song too yeah, very mm. creepy song. Yeah, yeah, no, and and the, was is the song leading up to it also the same song? Right? I don't know. He kind of sings like two songs yeah, back he kinda, to back. Well, first it. it's like. Um, oh, Joe's got the lyrics. I got Here the, we go. No, no, <laughs> I
0: have. I have just the soundtrack. Just the soundtrack. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's Gaston's soliloquy, just where he's kind of talking about how he's a creep.
1: I thought you were going to do the sixteen going on seventeen uh, shtick again, but we got the I, sound of music.
0: No, I, after that whole thing, <laughs> yeah, the, I don't if, think we need to. I, think, I don't think
1: we need to put these lyrics on paper. I think of it. Yeah, no. <laughs> I can't
0: put this on a computer because if I ever get searched, <laughs> I'm going to prison. Um, so he, you know, it's his soliloquy into it, but it was just. It was one of the songs, and we've talked about this before, where these songs where when it's over, you already forgot about it. Mm. And that's not what you want out of a musical.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the It's a Bore one was okay. That was
0: fine. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just,
1: again, it's just a lot of, I mean, the, the Champagne one I, I dug a little bit. Again, it's like it's so kind of those, like, while they're going on, I'm like, all right, all right, right. this is a song. And then... You just kind of move on and and you forget, you know, so. The It's a Boar song was fine because it was catchy.
0: I just thought it did a better job. It did a good job, I think, of setting up Gaston. Grandmama comes back to that later. Like, oh, you you have to be so rich to be bored in Monte Carlo. So, like, I think it just sets him up quickly. But, I, you know, is it the best song I've ever heard? No. But, so, I have a question for both of you. Okay. Do you guys make it a regular occurrence to hang out with your uncle's ex-girlfriends from 20 years ago? <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> is,
1: is, I thought I was
0: alone in this.
1: Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. There is, is some kind of odd family structure here going on that I, I can't quite... It's grooming. ...process. It's grooming. Yeah, I guess it's it's grooming and it's like aiding in and in embedding with the grooming too. Like the, the family's involved.
0: You well, know, this is... So,
1: because Annalisha...
0: Is, I mean, she's awful person. Yeah. Oh, I think I think Grandmama has a heart, but I think she's weak. And she gets eaten alive by the black hole of Analicia's heart. Because I do agree with you that I like Grandmama and Honoré's song. I, I do like their song because in a... We have no background for it, but it felt nostalgic still. And I think that was from the actors doing a good job.
1: Hmm, yeah. So
0: I, I, that made me like Grandmama... Um, more, you know, she makes apparently some excellent chamomile
1: tea, which was probably a lot harder 121 years ago. There you go. As as awful of a person as Aunt Alicia is, the she worst. does have my quote of the movie here. Oh, she does. She, she had does. some good one liners, okay, and it is a topaz among my jewels. Are you mad? <laughs> topaz is a, is a birthstone I think of I want to say October maybe it's just a brown a brown colored uh, rock there so yeah she's just very like very very disgusted at the thought that she would have a topaz in her jewels but you know we,
0: we kind of get to know that she's dated powerful men around the world mm. and that she's rich um, I learned what an Ortolan was I had no idea um, do you really eat the bones of this tiny bird I
1: guess so. Yeah,
0: I looked it up, and I guess that was a thing. This is not my quote of the movie, but Alicia did have one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's very on brand with me, where she said, bad table manners have caused more separations than infidelity. Wow. And <laughs> I love that
1: because, you know, don't be gross with food. Yeah, that's right. That's right. She's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> they should have sent. Uh, they should have sent all Favel to this. To this. If, uh, if Favel went there, yeah.
0: Slow would be in prison, and Favel would be living in a mansion.
1: Favel, we're we're referring to George Sanders and Rebecca here. Joey cannot get past how he eats his chicken wings in in the movie Rebecca. Oh. He puts
0: them in a basket with other food, brings them back out, and eats them again. <laughs> sorry.
1: Yes. Yeah, so sorry for that little rant there. I do want to say though, with with Gigi's character. And these whole you know, and Zita, you mentioned Pygmalion, my fair Lady a little bit here, and you definitely get to see that whole kind of teaching her to be a lady situation i do I do think that if you watch this movie focusing on her character arc and as as Gaston as the object and not the subject, I think the movie becomes a little more interesting where. Gigi really does everything on her own terms for the most part throughout the process of this movie. And her handling the cigars, doing that, you know, pouring the, the coffee or pouring the tea whatever right. it is, you know, other than drinking the wine, she really does not have much interest in doing any of this stuff. No. And, and that's kind of how she handles this layer of the of the Parisian social circle here is that she just really isn't that interested in doing these things on their terms and just being part of that Parisian socialite circle. And I, I, I kind of like that even in the end when she, you know, she says no, she says no to Gaston. And then she says, yes, but, but she's fitting in when she wants to fit in. But it's not what she ultimately wants until he realizes that the only way that it's going to work is, is that he's got to marry her. Right. Um, I really like her arc as far as that goes. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh,
2: yes. Just bringing in Pygmalion again. There are so many points in this where, for instance, the I'm Bored song, you are meant to take Gaston at his word and to think, oh, this poor man, he's so wealthy that he can't enjoy anything. And in Pygmalion, you have a similar plot device that is used to set up the central conceit, where Henry Higgins is bored with his life, he feels like he's not being challenged enough, And so he decides to accept a dare to train this young girl to learn how to be a high society lady, even though she's a gutter snipe. And I think in that one, you're meant to see his actions as horrible and you're meant to go, oh, it's awful, this upper class person using a lower class person as though they're just a guinea pig in a way. Whereas in this film, you're meant to think, oh, poor Gaston. Oh, his mistress is cheating on him. Isn't that awful? As though he's committed to her or faithful to her or something. It's very odd that you're meant to be on his side. There's all this thematic depth that could be mined out of some of the songs, and it's just not there because it feels like the screenwriters are afraid to go there which is a shame. Could've you do been- see
1: though in that in that card game is that she really kind of wins over him at every point of this movie and the card game I think is the is kind of the epicenter of that where he though he thinks he's setting her up and though he thinks that he's in control she's kind of in control of him the whole movie. It is kind of a shame that he gets to have the girl at the end of this thing. I mean cuz yeah it, it he is not a likable character and he's not someone that even though the movie, as you said, Zita kind of like sets you up to to root for him, he's not someone that you really root for. The one thing that you do like out of it is 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 that Gigi kind of has him under under her thumb this entire movie. I don't know what do you think about that, Joe?
0: Yeah, and I think where that really shows is when he, you know she comes out in the new dress, um, and he wants her dressed more like a little girl because he is also a pedophile like his uncle. <laughs> <laughs> but um he, he she, and he th- he throws a hissy fit and runs away. She goes to the mirror and goes, "Why do you run away?" She knew I, he knew I'd go back at her, and it showed. And I think very much like you said in that card game that while this guy, oh, this big powerful guy, you know, he buys this and it makes all this money, whatever he wants, you know, I don't care what car I have. That she's in control. She's a lot smarter than anyone gives her credit for. Like she understands. The back and forth that they have better than he does. She's, I think, playing much more of a pragmatic role. He's playing more of an emotional role. Maybe because he's never been told no. Maybe because nobody's ever come back to him. Maybe because he's just a whiny baby. I don't know. But yeah, um, he. She's kind of grooming him for her. In many, in many I wish, but <laughs> let, let, please let's turn it on that because uh, you know I, I think I think she's more powerful than they meant her be. Sorry, Zina.
2: No, and I think it could have worked, this story. It could have worked far better if they hadn't pushed the romantic angle so much and Mm -hmm. if they had acknowledged the fact that what Gaston is doing is immoral on some level or if they had presented the titular character as somebody who is aware of the fact that she exists in this world where she has to use sex and love as bargaining chips essentially in order to get married and to achieve financial security instead of presenting her as this dopey kid who doesn't get what's going on Hmm. and uh, you could have had something like dangerous liaisons even where you have all of these awful immoral people and they're all very witty and you're sort of Delighting in how awful they are—I think that would have worked much better as a tone. And if the film had been upfront about the fact that Gaston is a creep, then I think it would be yeah. much easier to enjoy the scenes where she's getting one over on him.
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, while I think it's safe to say that this movie hasn't really aged great, as far as forget about the content, but as just as far as relevance today and and what people love to watch today. It was a great success at the time. I mean, let's be honest here. Nine Oscar wins, a clean sweep at the Oscars. Are any of those Oscar wins, and just leaving out the other movies, because I am excited to do the other nominees section for this one, because Zita, you're someone who has seen every Oscar nominee. Uh, I'm sorry, every Best Picture Oscar nominee at this point. So we'll we'll get your thoughts on all those movies that we're up against. But out of those nine wins, are there any that you look at just in the context of this movie alone, Gigi, that you consider mm, not so good, particularly offensive, wh- whatever it might be.
2: Yes, so I think this is the point in the podcast where I should note that I've been really down on this movie so far. I've been criticizing it, but at heart I have to admit that things like the shot composition and the set design and the costume design have won me over at points when I've watched mm. the film, and I can see why in all of these technical categories it triumphed. I think you just can't deny the fact that there is incredible craft on display. And despite the fact that I might disagree with some of the directions that the story took, I can see why the Academy was really into something like this. It is beautifully constructed. And looking at the winds, I find it difficult to deny it any of these, except for best song. I think that just doesn't make sense. Nothing about Gigi is memorable or interesting or notable. That just feels like them going, we really love this film. Let's hand an award to this song. And it just doesn't make sense on any level.
1: Yeah, I I would agree. And I know that not every song on the soundtrack was eligible because I think that there were a couple that were used in other mediums before this. So um, Gigi was one that was specifically written the movie this became a broadway play after the fact too so i think it, it, it i don't think it was a successful one or, or was on for very long but joe out of the nine wins were there any one of those wins that kind of stuck out to you that no oh, i got an oscar for this or
0: i think all the production design any the cinema i think the cinematography one was great something that really stood out i'll, ra- I'll, I'll rattle them off here just for the okay, listener okay. too just to, yeah, i don't, just, I wanna I don't sure.
1: expect everyone listening to have Gigi's nine Oscar wins memorized here. Uh, picture, director, writing, screen, uh, adapted screenplay, uh, cinematography, art set direction, costume design, film editing, original song, and best score.
0: So honestly, I think the, the writing, the mm-hmm. adapted screenplay, like, was, is this the best written thing? Like, I don't think the
1: dialogue was ever fantastic. Yeah, I think that that came from... And I should mention that there was also – there was a Gigi movie that came out soon after the novel came out. It was a French movie. You right. Know, entirely, you know, entire, entirely in French and whatnot. But um, I think a lot of that award came from just taking the fact – you took this popular novella and you turned it into a musical and you shifted around a couple of characters. So I think from the adaptive standpoint, I think it maybe – right. it, it, it maybe worked for them there.
0: I think that one is the biggest one because you know I don't like the GG song, but it was big. I don't know what other songs were there that that year, but um, you know I think GG's a bad song. I said that like I would rather. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of these songs are best pictures. Like our best song.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what else was up, so it's tough to. That right. can always be tough to see. Interesting that there's no acting nominations. Does that surprise you, Zita? Is there one that if if you had to pitch one, who who might it be?
2: So it does surprise me, but then I did some reading about it, and from what I read, apparently the Academy was uncomfortable with the idea of giving Chevalier an actual nomination because he had been a, not a Nazi sympathiser during World War II, but he was in France and allegedly, well, not allegedly, there is proof that he did agree to entertain for Nazi officials and decided to Over. go go yeah. along with it. And I think you can be sympathetic to that because obviously he didn't want to die. And it, it, you don't know what you would do if put in that position. I think it's very easy for us from a modern perspective to say, no, I would have walked up to a Nazi and told him what I thought. Yeah. Of it. But there was <laughs> the, the very real threat of being murdered or having your entire family murdered at that time. And so I, I get why some people did make decisions to just go along with it and try to get through the war. But it did tarnish his reputation for a long time. And I think this film and others in the late 50s were seen as a comeback for him. So they give him an honorary award, but they allege that he might have been shut out because there was discomfort over the fact that he had committed these actions during World War II. And then I think the Caron snub is probably the most puzzling of all of them, where this is the Best Picture winner. She did receive two Best Actress nominations, so clearly they weren't allergic to her. And it just seems odd that this didn't happen. And you look at the Best Actress slate this year and you do have five very famous women all in big showy roles. So I suppose I understand why she couldn't Mm. compete with Susan Hayward and Elizabeth Taylor and Deborah Carr. But you would still think that she came close.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. That is kind of the thing, too, is that when you look at it for what it is, you say, oh, I just coming into prepping for this, I had, I guess I had assumed that Leslie Karen was nominated for this because I know that she had been nominated before. So I think I was like, Oh, she must have got the nomination for Gigi. And then, you know, you do forget sometimes, like you mentioned, Zita, is sometimes you just have these stacked years where there's powerhouses going in for it and there's just no room for. A tip of the cap nomination, which is what this would have been, because I don't see her winning, even if she was nominated. I don't even think it would, even even in a year where it might have been a little lighter, it's tough to it's tough to imagine a win out of this one. But she was the biggest one.
0: Where I'm fine with Gaston and Honoree not getting it. Like I don't think that either of them did really blew me away. I think they were good, but neither of them blew me away where I think she, Leslie Coran, getting an award would have been. We've already mm-hmm.
1: talked a little bit about uh, about Gaston. Uh, we haven't mentioned Louis Jordan, the uh, the guy who, who played him, uh, the actor there, Louis Jordan, um, who would later be in a Bond's movies. And yeah. The, uh, uh, actor <laughs> pussy. Yeah. And what did you think of his performance? What do you think about him as an actor in general, Zita?
2: So for me, he's a bit dull. I know you had this whole stable of French actors in Hollywood at the time where you had... Caron and Jordan and Chevalier and Charles Boyer and they were all collaborating on these Franco-sploitation films and I've always found him to be a bit stiff. I suppose he's traditionally handsome, he was a matinee idol, but I, I don't entirely get the appeal and I think when he is playing Gaston, this character who is unlikable on the page It is an issue when he doesn't have incredible charisma. In An American in Paris, for example, you could say that Gene Kelly's character is a bit weird for being so into this very young (laughs) French girl, but it is Gene Kelly, and he's so charming and charismatic, and you just want to watch Mm -hmm. him on screen, and he's an incredible dancer, and you get to see him dance in the movie. And I think in this one... Jordan didn't do his own singing. I don't know whether he was a decent dancer or not, and he just doesn't have a lot to show for himself.
1: This movie was sorely missing Gene Kelly. I'll say, I, I had that note written down. It's kind of it, it. It looked like the team that lost their big free agent in the off season. You know, <laughs> like where like what happened to Gene Kelly? Let's get him back in the mix here because you do have yeah. the same director, you have the same. Yeah. Uh, you know the the same writers and 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 producer uh, Arthur Freed in there too. So it it was it was kind of missing Gene Kelly. I think he would have been an interesting guy to have in the mix here. Because
0: watching Gene Kelly dance through Paris while singing Gigi would have been a lot better than watching Gaston kind of stumble through. Yeah, because even his walking while singing, I didn't think was impressive.
1: You're right. He did the the one kind of choreography scene, I, I, which was the the night they invented the day they invented champagne. Um, yeah. I thought the three of them did a nice job with the small space that, that they had was fun. to work fun That was with fun. That was yeah, fun I, I, I I enjoyed that. And I thought Leslie Cowan was pr- particularly good in that, kind of sneaking was- the champagne while the other two are dancing.
0: I think she stood out in that scene really yes. well, where I think the other two really did a r- good job of doing their jobs and not getting in her way.
1: Yeah. And, and Zita, I, I'm going ag- to agree with you here, for the most part, here with Louis Jordan. Um, I mean, the character Gaston gets a ton of airtime here in this thing. I mean, we spend... A lot of time with him, and he gets every opportunity to win us over with some semblance of charm, and I, it's just not there for me. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, it's it, it, it. He was given a lot of at bats here. <laughs> he didn't do a lot with it. Um, I I do. He did kind of. I don't know if it was like kind of how he looked, or a little bit, or maybe even his presence. Kind of remind me a little bit of Freddie Prince Jr. Did you get that? all? Am I losing my mind? There? maybe I just I'm watching a little. You've too been watching much. too I much. I know what you did last summer. <laughs> yeah. Um... What do you think about that? Scene?
2: Well, that is interesting because it ties it into "She's All That," which you could say is another Pygmalion oh, yeah. adaptation. So they are yes. all interconnected. And the thing that that movie does that is different to these other Pygmalion stories is that you have the bet revealed and then he has to spend the entire third act winning her back and being a nice person and learning how to become a better human being. And it feels like Gigi... Skips over all of that, and he, in the spur of the moment, goes, Okay, I'll marry her. I guess I can settle for this. It doesn't feel like it's love. And I don't think She's All That is perfect by any means, but at least a (laughs) night shyamalan screenwriter did figure out (laughs) a way to put the audience on Freddie Prince Jr.'s side. You have Paul Walker presented as this villainous figure. And so you do have some reason to root for him. Whereas Gaston, we don't know a whole lot about him. I suppose you could say that bad parental figures are a theme in the film because he has Maurice Chevalier whispering in his ear. And I know it's his uncle, but he does have a relationship with him that seems very parental. And he's telling him all of these bad things and encouraging him to hang out with this incredibly young girl and in gigi's case her mother isn't really a presence in her life and she has her aunt who wants to make money off of her so maybe you could see both of them as victims of abuse in a way or just parental neglect neglect is abuse
0: yeah um i only knew Louis jordan from swamp thing that that was my only. I knew nothing else of him. Wow. Yeah. So I'm watching. I'm like, I I know this guy. And he goes to the IMDb, and I just started hysterically laughing. That Swamp Thing was where I, uh, I got him
1: from. Eva Gabor. Were the Gabor sisters any uh, any notes on them?
2: So I think it's Jaja is in this one as the, the, the It's Eva. They have the Eva. Oh, list it's Eva it Gabor. One. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, they look very similar, <laughs> very. and they occupied similar roles in Hollywood. And I suppose they were the original sort of famous for being famous sisters. I know that both of them had some film roles and they were actresses, but I think they were more famous for their personalities and being in tabloids. So I suppose you could see them as the the forerunners to the Kardashians. And I don't right. think she's a terribly good actress, but I suppose she fits into this milieu where she's this Hungarian model who has this outrageous personality. So it does make sense that she'd be in the Belle Epoque. Whereas Leslie Caron almost seems too proper for this world. I believe she had been living in England for a long time before she made the film. And you do notice she has a heavy posh English accent. I did find it funny. We get these scenes where the characters are talking about learning English And they're going, oh, it's (laughs) so difficult, it's so hard. And so, of course, they're (laughs) speaking English. Well, they talk about <laughs> I have that, all... Yeah, this. I have that highlighted
1: yeah. strong in my uh, that's nip, a nitpick. <laughs> nitpick section. yeah.
2: <laughs> so that's sort of odd. Uh, but no, I don't think Gabor is best in show or anything, but she does her job.
1: Yes, yeah. And I, I kind of dug that, that small role there. I thought she did a nice job with it. I, I most uh, am familiar with her and her voice work in uh, The Rescuers and The Rescuers Down Under. She plays oh, Miss Bianca okay. in the but, um, I, I liked
0: when Gigi called her pretty but common, ordinary and coarse. I thought that was that was
1: a funny introduction to a character. We get a little tennis. Ooh. Um, I wanted to ask you this, Sita. Do you think either Gigi or Leslie Karen, or either the character or the actress, do you think that she could beat Woody Allen in a tennis match? Oh,
2: Oh gosh! Mm. I wonder.
1: Are
0: you trying to make this the most problematic? BBC I mean, we're, episode we're already here. I might as well bring up Woody Allen. I mean, but.
1: yes. Oh, would Just be. please, Zita, to answer this. Maybe is was she- that, or it was that, or do you think Sylvester Stallone's a better ice skater? Oh, that's wow. our only other. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> we get the the uh, the ice hockey rink that we get in Rocky. We get the tennis court that we get in Annie Hall. So mm. I don't know. What 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 do you, what can you say to that?
2: Mm perhaps she maybe she could i I do wonder i i I did find it funny that we get her being so incompetent at so many things that felt weird yeah
1: yeah and i think thought that was just again a nod about her just not not having any real care Mm -hmm. to syncing up with this world Mm -hmm. you know that, that she's she's in her own world and she's doing her own thing at her own pace and properly uh sniffing a cigar or properly pouring a a, a cup of tea, or or playing tennis, or all the, all those things are, you know, she'll do it because her aunt is making her, but she really has no interest in, in being efficient in any of it. Mm. That's what I took out of it, at least.
0: Yeah, and I think she just has fun. I don't think, you know, in that world where everybody's wearing neck-to-toes gowns playing tennis, or suits playing tennis, and, you know, the other woman they keep showing was being proper, and she's flopping around. I think she just <laughs> doesn't give a shit.
1: Um, I think... I think she would beat Woody Allen. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, so you mentioned before, Zitas that though you've been we've been doing some beating up on this movie, is that uh, one of the things you, you did really enjoy was the was the costume design, and, and that's one of the things that kind of elevates this movie in general. T- talk to us a little bit about the, the costume design and, and the, the role that you think it plays in this.
2: Well, I think a lot of the outfits are just glorious, and I think one of the things that you have to accept is that. This, like a lot of old Hollywood productions, is gaudy and tacky and over-the-top, and I think even though they tried to convince people that, oh, Gigi, it's so sophisticated, it's set in France, we hired all of these French actors, it is tacky. I, I don't think there's a whole lot going on here that is the height of sophistication. And yet I think that visual aesthetic works, and in part just because... Vincent Minnelli, very famous for his use of technicolor in a lot of films and his ability to really successfully integrate new technology into pre-existing stories. And I think it does work really well here. There's a great balance between a lot of the bright, garish colors and whites that help to balance all of that out. And again, it's not the most tasteful use of color, But I don't always think that is called for. When she walks into her aunt's living room and you have these bright red walls and you think, God, did anybody ever have their house painted this way? But it looks fantastic. It really does Mm. keep you engaged. And on some level, I thought this might have even worked better as a silent film. I think it looks fantastic. And as long as people aren't opening their mouths... You can enjoy <laughs>
0: it. I mean, I I loved every single room. I think Maxim's was one of my favorite locations. I love Grandmama's house. Like I, I think each they did a really good job. You know, Paris has a personality of its own and they did a good job with that. But I think each location they were at had a personality and became a character of its own, which I really appreciated because I, I think that's something people try to do and don't succeed at always and, and I think they did a really good job here
1: yeah i I do want to just call attention too is that the the extras here just each of them having such an elaborate dress on and, and a costume there was no they didn't broad stroke anything with the costume design they made sure each person in 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 the shot was dressed to the nines uh, whether that was in the park scene in the beginning or in the at the ice skate rink scene or during one of the one of the galas that they're at. Um, just really, really, and I, 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 I heard that they did a lot of um, looking at old French paintings. Yes, which and, is cool. And trying to recreate costumes based on that and recreate set designs based on that. So there was a ton of attention to detail to this. And like, as you said, know, although it is super big and super lavish and maybe that turned some people off, um, I, I really appreciated the color palette of this movie. And all of the work that they put into every single person that appeared on screen. Where so many times we see these movies, there's just people walking around in the background doing whatever. And this one, they made sure that the movement of these characters was was very succinct and and telling a story with the cameras.
2: Yes, it definitely was, and I would argue, the cinematography win was possibly the most deserving of all of mm-hmm. the wins that it got. I, I get why they loved it in the technical categories and then once you get to things like screenplay which joe brought up it's more difficult to see why they went wild over it yes there is the adaptation element but you do just have better films in this category you have memorable dialogue in some of the other nominees and even though yes hermione gingold's character does have some memorable one-liners it's difficult to point to this screenplay and go, "Oh, beautifully written, excellent construction on display." There's none of that.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a very of its time win and mm-hmm. at having to do with learner status. If if he was a no-name who did that script, there's no way he wins that award. I I don't think at least. I think that he won that off of who he was and the work that he had already done with, with Arthur Freed. So as you said, Zeta and Joe, as you said before, there's really nothing spectacular about this script whatsoever. The cinematography
0: and just the way the world's put together, I think you're so spot on with the extras, because all the extras felt meaningful. They weren't just there. And even like you spoke about with the opening scene, where
1: it's the younger movement, older,
0: stagnant. I think that was great.
1: Yeah, Um. I, I don't think we have to spend a whole ton more time on on the the plot here with this one. I, I do want to throw it out to you, Zita. Is there anything that we haven't mentioned yet as far as the, the structure of, of the movie, structure of the plot? Is there a scene particular that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to call attention to?
2: I did wonder whether, and you kept talking about how you could interpret this as something very dark, where Maurice Chevalier is a villain and he's evil and all of these people are terrible and immoral. You probably could watch it as a critique of the lives that these people lead mm-hmm. and the Bella époque and the whole culture that it encourages. And so on that note, I suppose the ending where she does end up marrying him and we're meant to believe that they're this very happy couple could be seen as this note of resignation on her part where she has completely lost her personality or her sense of identity so that she can marry this person who seemingly likes her because she is different but then decides that he wants her to be like all of the other women in Paris so it's this peculiar mixture where he can't quite figure out what he wants even at the end, when he has married her,
1: yeah, and that's you know that's kind of kind of reading into where I'm going next with that because I I, I texted Joey after watching it and, and I don't like to do a lot of that I like to kind of let, let this when we talk on the podcast be the really only time we talk about it and we didn't really talk about the movie but I did say to him I'm confused yeah you know? <laughs> and it, it just kind of like the the movie <laughs> when it ended I just was left completely kind of like what what did I just watch. When that happens, I tend to kind of go one of two ways. Either I'm just going to throw it onto the pile of flaming garbage in the side of the room, that's just then not think about it again, or I'm gonna dive deeper and, and really sink into it. And of course, since we're doing a podcast, I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna dive a little bit. And I, I, in, in my, my second viewing, in kind of getting past what the, the first layer of the movie is and kind of digging deeper into what they're really trying to do with this character and what they're trying to say, why the movie ends that way, I really took it as, is that this whole society that she's kind of been born into, she being Gigi, has been born into, is set up in its way, and there's not a whole hell a lot of any, anyone can do about it. And you have this Gaston character who's not so into it himself, it's a bore, but he's going along the way because that's what he does, and so he has feelings for Gigi, so okay, you know what, he's going to... Do the do what he normally does. He's gonna pay for this, pay for that, she'll be his mistress, they'll write newspaper articles on her, whatever. That's gonna be how it is. But in the two of them getting together, because Gigi is is in in many ways her own savior in this situation, because she does things on her terms. She, though she does want to be with Gaston, because she's attracted to him or whatever, however, whatever's going on there. We could say that for nitpicks, I suppose. But um, <laughs> by doing it on her terms, she is taking him out of that bore situation that he has found himself in, where he never would have been able to do that himself. He was incapable of that. He is the object of this movie, and she is the subject, and she draws him out of that world and into the married life that they can now go on and, and leave this this Parisian social structure. Now, the script doesn't do a whole hell of a lot of, of that work for you, and I might just be just pulling nothing out of a out of an empty hat. But but I I do think that when you watch this movie under a certain lens in a certain context, that the 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 mom and the uh, sorry, the grandma and the and you can throw the mom in there too, and the uncle, they're all just they're all just antagonists. And and the city itself is one of those antagonists as well, and they're all designed to to just close the walls in on Gigi, and her uh, her perseverance does not allow that to happen because of of, of her independence and who she is as a person. I actually like a lot of what you said, and but in
0: that is you know we we always do favorite quote, but my least favorite quote, and I the, what I think makes the least sense from Gigi. Was when she said to Gaston, you know, I'd rather be miserable with you than miserable without you because I think that goes against kind of what we know and what we take from her throughout the rest of the movie. Which I because I agree with so much of what you said where it's kind of that's getting out of the boredom and the rigmarole of it because now they, they can go to... Monte Carlo, you know, they don't have to go in August because that's not, you know, not in the social aspect of it. But when she comes and just kind of resign, this person who does seem always a little bit a step ahead, always, you know, on her own, just now being resigned to, yeah, no, I'm going to be unhappy. And, you know, I'm 17, I hope, my my Lord, I hope (laughs) I'm going to be unhappy for the
1: next 40 years. Yeah, I had, I thought that too, Joe. And I did. I'm glad that you pointed that out. I think that that was the, the, the teamwork that went on, like as any marriage is, is teamwork, is that she cast her guys leading up to that point. Okay. And saying that, no, I can't be this, I can't do that. And she left it there for him to then take a step back and say, okay, this isn't right. And he, he needed to have some level of redemption in order to make any kind of sense out of their union at the end. Right. And he needed to not... He needed to take a step back and say, "No, this can't. You know, we can't do this. We can't have it this way." Um, I don't love that either. I kind of wish that the whole thing was on her terms. Right. I would have preferred that. But that being said, as I think it did work with that. What do, what do you think? We just threw a whole lot at you. There, <laughs> that. This, this is what we do here. We're out of our minds. So, what, what did you think about all that?
2: No, I completely agree with you. I think the ending feels so rushed. And in terms of discussing the pacing. I did note that in the first two acts, there are a lot of scenes that are very languidly paced. It doesn't feel like they have much of a purpose. And again, you can imagine a version of this film where it's just trying to soak up the atmosphere of Paris during this time. And it's almost like a a Woody Allen film where it's more about a group of friends and their relationship dynamics and... It's sort of a slice-of-life picture, but this one, during the third act, decides, no, we have a plot now, and we need to get through it, and during a three-minute scene, we're going to try to convince you that he has decided that he wants to marry her, and now they're blissfully in love, and they're just the happiest couple in the world. And, oh, I would note, during the final scene... I praised the costume design, but that dress was mm, not great. <laughs>
1: not for you? No. Not no. for you? I will let the record show. Just let the record show you brought up Woody Allen that time, not me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this nitpick section now. I think it's time to enter the, the nitpick zone. Now, this is a section here we found a couple times we're just getting too distracted during the major discussion of this just leading into nitpicks. So now apologize. We're going gonna to load all our nitpicks <laughs> Into the end in, the, in one section. So we are now entering the nitpick zone. Are you ready for this, Edith?
2: Yes, I am.
1: Okay. Yes. Do, 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 we need a theme song do, for the nitpick. We zone. do. I think we do. Yes. Um, Joe, I'm going to let you go first because you just like lunged for your notes and just kind ju- of. got very named. excited here. So
0: okay. So Leanne going behind her back with going behind Gaston's back with Sandemir, the ice skate guy. So they offer him some money to leave his life. I did some conversions from 1,900 francs to U.S. dollars in 1,900 and now to 2,021. This guy left his entire life for $5,000. Five grand. A little bit over, like 5,321
1: about, but yeah. And what? who is doing that? It's a lot of money. Yeah, but to just drop everything you have and five grand. And that would be five grand, 2020. One 2021, money. that's five grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but that's not enough for me. I don't know. What do you think about that one, Zita?
2: Yeah, hmm. Maybe back then, though, that was enough. I know inflation changes things, but perhaps that was a king's ransom back in the old yeah, days. And yeah, maybe,
1: and maybe based on his class, I mean, maybe that, that, yeah. that's a big a big bonus for him. I'm not sure. But to that's, give that's up tough. your just leave
0: and never look back? Like, it's not like he was in some small village
1: in the south of France.
0: He was in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I, I did, Zita, you did have one of my big ones there before is where they're scoffing at speaking English and English class and all that while they're talking English instead of French. I know that it's kind of one of those movie things where they're in another country and everyone right. speaking English. You just have to get past it. But uh, I, I did. Make calling it another att- language. Yeah, calling attention right. to it in the script is an interesting choice. Zita, do you have a nitpick for us here?
2: Well, it's related to that nitpick, but I did find it odd that they essentially conflate upper-class Parisians with upper-class Brits, because again, you have the (laughs) accent where they're all speaking in this cut-glass British accent. And I thought, sorry, everybody knows that there is a clash between French culture and British culture. Maybe I'm stereotyping here, but... I think if you went to any French person or any British person and said, mm, "Is your culture similar to the other culture?" and they would go, "Oh no, it's so different." And, <laughs> and so it's just this odd choice to go. Mm, these two countries that have clashed throughout history, basically the same.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, I I did want to say now. I, I I don't I don't fully know what the what the drinking tactics were. Back then, but I'm, I'm going to take a couple leaps of logic here. And now, she's teaching Gigi how to be a lady. Right. And how to uh, handle her table manners and everything like that. And one of them is how she holds the wine glass. Right. And and how she handles that. Now, Gigi's glass is poured very acceptably at mm-hmm. first. Okay. Now, anyone who drinks wine, and I maybe this has changed over the years... Notice that you don't fill the wine glass up to the top of the brim. And Auntie here has a big gulp yeah. of wine there. There's no, there's no dampness. Yeah, and if if you're teaching a child how to drink, why are we filling the wine glasses up all the way to the top? <laughs> I mean, Gigi, rightfully so, takes advantage. Why wouldn't she? You know, I, Good I would for her. The same. Yeah, I would do the same. But I, I just don't... I, I Maybe in, in 1900 France, they filled the wine up to the top of the glass. I highly doubt it, though. You got to... And, and she even... She even, like, calls attention to the fact you has got to let it breathe. You know, mm-hmm. you got to let the... Yeah, but you're not letting it breathe by filling it up to the top of the glass. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, uh, you know. Joey, what else you have for us so, here? Nitpicks. So, 1900s France, they were all
0: just really cool with grooming children? I mean, it seems that way. I, I, I... Because we're meant to assume that this is not happening in a vacuum to Gigi. Based off all the narration by Henri... This is what's going on. Oh, in this France. is yeah. No, yeah.
1: no. Uh, yeah, Henri is like uh, in, in the scene. I mean, yeah. It's like he. This is like a
0: super just rapey scene. Yeah, and they're um, just like everybody in the nineteen hundreds is like cool. How do we get our kid into it? Yeah, that
1: is the nitpick of the whole movie. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared to think that it's not a nitpick that that is actually what went on, you right? Know? So uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Zita, any any uh, other nitpicks pop out to you?
2: Well, I think Joe really hits the nail on the head there, <laughs> where it's so strange that the movie simultaneously wants to say no, prostitution is bad and we disapprove of it, specifically child prostitution and woman should be able to get married. But then it also wants to romanticize it. It doesn't seem mm. to know where the line is between what's bad about it and I don't think there's anything good about it. But I think the movie does suggest that, oh, isn't it charming when her aunt is teaching her how to drink wine so that she can sell her off to some old man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah That's
1: yeah. funny. When Woody, when Woody Allen comes in with that, oh my God. that American Buck's uh, man, Woody Allen comes up way too much on these things. <laughs> I do. Now, and Joe, you brought him up that time. So there we go. We're all, we're all Now all three of us are equally guilty. Um, I, uh, listen, I've been a cat owner my whole life. They sedated that cat. They're, well, the so cat dated her. Whenever it, they were in a scene together, it acted violently, so they had to sedate it. because They did sedate yeah. it. Oh, see, I nailed that. The, the, the director refused. Saying, I have never... Seen a cat act that well behaved before? She's lifting the thing up. Why wouldn't the cat hate her? She's tossing it around like a teddy bear. I mean, this. I mean, I'm watching this thing like there's no way that that cat is a drug. That does. So there you Nailed go. It. It, it, Nailed it. it. Boom. There we go. Uh, yeah, cats do not behave that way. They do not like to be handled that way. They don't like to have have the worst song on the soundtrack sung at them in a <laughs> windowsill <laughs> while they're just trying to just sleep. That doesn't. Uh, that, that doesn't happen. So next, though, as we mentioned before. Boy, Twitter really loves this movie, huh? Oh, Um, God. Yeah. I tried to avoid
0: the questions, but then today I was like, I have
1: to look. And there were so many, and they were all so mean,
0: passive, aggressively. Yeah, this (laughs) is,
1: uh, wow. It's almost like Twitter was mad that we're covering this movie. Like, like I'm sorry, we have to cover all the Best Picture winners. What do you want me to do? Here, are we just going to pretend it didn't win? (laughs) They just wanted Cat on a Hot Tin Roof this year. I mean, there's going to be problematic movies of this list. I, mean, was, I guess it was the kind of same as when we did Annie Hall. This is a similar thing, but Okay. Um, so, we did get Twitter questions, and, and Zita, you have quite the Twitter following. I think that everyone gets excited to see that you're on here, so, yeah. you know, sometimes we put these things out and nobody answers but Grant. so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think nobody, like Chariots of Fire, I asked three
0: questions, I think there was four questions. Yeah,
1: that's true. <laughs> um, we, we will start with Grant, because he was the first one to the mix. And he goes, what other Jennifer Lopez <laughs> movies do you think could have won an Oscar? So that is a, uh, that is a G. Lee dig, I'm guessing there, from Grant C., our very own Grant C. Have you seen seen G. Lee, Zita?
2: No, so I've never seen it, but I am aware of the infamous... Is it Jennifer Lopez says, turkey, turkey, gobble, gobble, and it's meant to be sexy. <laughs> the turkey is meant to be her vagina, or- uh, <laughs> which is yeah, not, I, I, not great.
1: That's even... That's deeper than I
0: know on that one. I will say, though, Jennifer Lopez was excellent in Hustlers, and I thought that she
1: deserved some love there. Oh, hmm. would well, you do you agree with that one, Zita?
2: Yes, definitely. I think it's really a shame that they shut her out.
1: I don't have much to say about her filmography to be completely honest with you. I think the ones I've seen are maybe like the wedding planner and uh, she's in a U turn with, with Sean the Henn? What's the one with Cleo? Oh, out of sight?
0: Out of sight. She's with in the, Out of Sight. Out of sight with George Clooney? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but she's made in South. she was in Selena. Made in Manhattan. I think the wedding planner. Made in yeah. Manhattan. No, I think she was in the wedding planner too. Yeah. Okay. Selena was the big one. I, I saw Selena as a kid, so I have no recollection of it, but like I know people who we're a fan of Selena. Love that movie, and speak very
1: highly of it. Enough is one I've seen. The the below freezing is an episode of Enough.
0: Okay, yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten to that because I don't know that movie.
1: Monster in law, of course. <laughs> and speaking of uh, speaking of below freezing in one thousand and one, Adam from one thousand one by one asks, "What is Gigi?" <laughs> 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 um, I I will just leave that as a rhetorical question. I guess. Thanks, Adam. We love you. If if we could, in if you could answer in one one sentence, Zita, what is Gigi? What would you, um, how would you respond to that?
2: Oh boy, mm. I think that's great. Oh boy, Every- anyway. mm. I,
1: yeah. I think that that's well said. Um. <laughs> okay, so next we have Owen Daly here, who I think has been on Three Hundred Passions with you before. Yep. Uh, Zita. Uh and he goes, "Why Gigi? I'm genuinely curious. Why you think this film steamrolled in 1958?" After so many excellent 40s and 50s features, this one being the eventual film to win Minnelli the top prizes will always confuse me. I'm going to let you handle that one, Zito. Why do you think this one steamrolled in 1950? So
2: I think in terms of historical context, it does become easier to understand why this won, and I think it was part of this larger trend in the 50s and the 60s where you do notice that... Hollywood was kind of stagnating and you had the 30s and 40s, which was this golden age. I believe 1946 was the most profitable year ever for the American studio system. Television Mm. gets introduced. Suddenly there's this massive threat to their supremacy. And you do notice all of these 50s trends that seem really gimmicky. And it seems like a lot of films are losing the ability to comfortably make money and all of these big musicals did tend to earn their budgets back and so i think there was a big support especially from old timers for these movies that were helping to keep the studio system alive which was obviously dying at the time and would eventually be eradicated and i believe the freed unit and we discussed this on the brigadoon episode that we recorded was also falling on hard times at this point in time. Mm -hmm. They were struggling to get big enough budgets to get these films made. And I think Gigi was really seen as this anomaly or an outlier where it was a big hit, audiences loved it, it received critical acclaim. And you do notice a lot of Academy voters were extremely old at this point in time. They were people who probably hadn't worked for 20 years in a lot of cases. And so I think they were big fans of old-fashioned entertainment and something like Gigi, even though we find the themes to be extremely disturbing. They would have seen this as something wholesome and it's this musical Mm. and Hollywood had made musicals forever. And so comparing it to something like Vertigo, for example, that's slightly more adventurous. It would have been a bit more shocking some of those older Mm. voters and so you can see why Gigi gets all of the votes and Vertigo gets shut out because that's this weird trashy movie that's all about obsession and this creepy guy who's forcing his girlfriend to dress up as another woman who may or may not have died and uh, I think Gigi does look really (laughs) old-fashioned it looks behind the times today And you see that trend keep going until the late 60s, where, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the infamous Dr. Doolittle nomination in 1967, where that was a massive flop, audiences hated it, critics hated it, Mm -hmm. almost everybody hated it, but they wined and dined a bunch of voters it does end up getting all of these major nominations, and a lot of people say that it was older voters being resentful of the fact that movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate, which contained all of this racy, shocking material were getting all of this attention and they wanted to bring the focus back to an old-fashioned, sweet musical.
1: That's well said and I I also wonder if, you know, we talked a little bit in the American in Paris and episode we talked about sing, Singing in the Rain also. I wonder if if because they, you know, American in Paris like swept the awards, they, don't, did, they did a great job that year and then the next year they didn't reward Singing in the Rain because I think it was too soon because they had just given the Gene Kelly captain. A project right. all these stuff. I wonder if now they're doubling back at this point and saying oh you know we didn't we didn't give the love to singing in the rain that maybe we should have. I don't know if they had realized it that early and now they're back to giving Freed some awards again. I wonder if that has any that's just conjecture on my part.
0: And I think in terms for Manelli because we spoke about it on American in Paris episode and we spoke about it Zita uh when we did Brigadoon that when he was directing that Gene Kelly took over a lot of it. Gene Kelly mm. made you know a lot. He did the choreography. He kind of made decisions. I mean, when you're that talented and glorious, you should be making more decisions. So I think this felt more like Minnelli's role. Mine, you know, not Minnelli's role. Minnelli's. This project. was, yeah, this was his project. So I think him getting really the love here, I, I, I completely understand.
1: Yeah. Um. So that kind of leads into our next question here. Zito, I'll, I'll toss this off to you first. And this is from um, Gabe Goreen. And uh, he writes, why was this the film Not Some Came Running that finally won Vincent Minnelli, his Best Director, and Best Picture Oscars. You know, we did mention that American in Paris won for for Best Picture there, but he did not win Best Director. That was Mm a a George Stevens win that year. Uh, What what do you think about that one? Because I have not seen Some Came Running. What do you think about that one, Zita?
2: So I think it is interesting that An American in Paris was the surprise winner back in 1951. And you have all of the people in the audience being shocked When it was announced and everybody thought that it would be a place in the sun or a streetcar named desire and so i think with Gigi coming along this was definitely the expected winner you had all of these predictions at the time saying oh how many will it win i don't think there was any questioning of whether it would take home the top prizes and i think the thing with some came running was that it was not as financially successful And I also think it didn't have the spectacle of Gigi, which was, again, shot on location, big budget, costume design. You had all of the best craftsmen in Hollywood working on it. And it was very awards friendly at the time because they loved musicals. And Some Came Running, which is one of my favorite films, actually, is Mm. it's a post-war melodrama, which they weren't entirely opposed to. But I don't think it quite had the monumental stature of something like A Streetcar Named Desire, which also deals with some of the same themes. But this one was based on a book that wasn't as popular as the Tennessee Williams play. And so I think you can see why it just didn't take off with audiences in the same way that Gigi did.
1: By the way, it's nice to have someone on who can actually answer some of these questions. Normally, it is like we're just shrugging at each other. We are not Um, movie experts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and the Oscar doesn't go to rights... Why did Leslie Karen miss the movie uh, when the movie got literally every nomination? We covered that one. Zita, you said oh, that well. I in, did in...
2: briefly think though we could talk about the wild Best Actress year in 1958. I thought I'd just briefly.
1: Oh, absolutely, that. absolutely will. And um, I think why don't we do that with the? Uh, we'll do that with the other nominees sure. at the end. Yeah. I'll, get, I'll give you a little uh, a little time to run there on that one. Fritz and the Oscars asked a couple questions for us here. He asked what our favorite song is. We'll do that in the awards as we normally do. Same with favorite performer. If you Um, can take only one Oscar away from Gigi, which one is it? So we've kind of danced around that a little bit. Uh, Joey, I'll have you go first there. Which Oscar would you take away? Screenplay. Screenplay.
0: Yeah, I think for me it's between um, screenplay and Gigi, the song. But um, I think screenplay, I just think, you know, I think there's... I think we mentioned a few times, a couple good one-liners, but in terms of, like, dialogue, nothing really stood out. Yeah. Uh, What about you,
2: Zita? I think I'm taking away song. Yes, the script is pretty dreadful, but it's competent, it's semi-competent, and the song is just so forgettable.
1: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, Zita. I'm taking the song out, too. I mean, the song is just, I couldn't even use it as like an intro and here, because it's so drab and meandering and just like, <laughs> uh, it's just not good. So yeah, the that, that GG comes out for that one with me as well. Would you give an acting nominee for someone here? It's coming from Fritz as well. What do you think about that, Joe? Would you would, would you nominate anyone? I mean, I would nominate Leslie Karen. Okay, Zita?
2: I don't think so. I just think it was a very competitive year in terms of acting. And even though there were performances that I did like, I couldn't justify putting them in there if I was putting together a dream lineup. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I could, you know, based on some of the light that, that you said about, about going with the honorary Oscar instead of uh, the supporting actor nominee for Maurice Chevalier, I guess I will just like point at that one and saying that maybe a supporting acting nominee there makes some sense since they were going to give him the honorary one, but maybe since he got the honorary one, he doesn't need that. I, I think the short, Answer that I have mostly here is is no. Though I don't see really see enacting a uh, nominee out of any of these performances. That's just me. Oscars and I Ward at Ward Willoughby writes which song other than in exclamation points because we all assume <laughs> that that is the way it is. Other than Thank Heaven for Little Girls has aged the worst. <laughs> so it's no no one's arguing that Thank Heaven for Little Girls hasn't <laughs> aged well. What other song hasn't? I mean, we mentioned is the one that the one that uh, Gaston sings. It, it, right before he sings Gigi there about her being like a tot and about her like being When did your a sparkle become a
0: fire? She's she a babe. To... <laughs> yeah, when um, did your sparkle become... Yeah,
1: yeah. Just weird. Gaston's soliloquy ages very poorly. Yeah, I, I mean... E- equally. I think, e- yeah, equally. It's just as bad. And, and now you're having at least... At least the other one is from a noted kind of like sinister character within this thing. Right. You're having kind of like the guy who gets the girl at the end saying yeah, it's not good. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Not good. This is a good one here from at Mark Lamb. How is this movie rated G and on TCM G as well? Training a virginal girl to be a courtesan should at least get a PG. Now, I, I, I think it when it came out, it was not rated. I think that it got yeah. the rating afterwards. But I agree on TCM. G rating is a little weird considering some of the content. They can, after the fact, maybe kind of upgrade that one, no? Right. What are they giving, like, Gaslight TV Youth? Like, what are <laughs> we doing here? <laughs> what do you think about that one, Zita?
2: I do think it's a really weird rating to give it. But then... The- I suppose it opens up a bigger conversation around the ratings that they give these films, because you do get a lot of debate over subtext versus things that are explicitly shown where they'll freak out if somebody says the F word once in a movie. Mm, But if you mm -hmm. have a film where it's implied that there's child prostitution going on, but never explicitly stated, then it's fine. And uh, 5-year-old girls should definitely be able to see it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, and finally we have uh from The Best Pictures podcast. Which Gaston would you rather be seated next to at a dinner party? Gaston from Gigi or Gaston from Beauty and the Beast? No brainer. Beauty and the Beast.
0: You're singing songs. Yeah. You're eating some great meat, you're drinking beers. You're, yeah. Now he's also a creep. Yeah, they were, they were talking he's also, about two
1: creeps here. He,
0: but his best friend, homosexual, so he's inclusive. <laughs> he's he's a small minded creep, but he's got you know he's open minded with his friends. He's gonna feed you well. They both seem somewhat generous. I think Beauty and the Beast guest on. As long as you're on his side, he'll give you whatever, and he's not bored with everything. Like I think he's more of a lover of life. Hmm. Versus,
1: What do you versus... think on this one
2: Zito? Oh I would definitely want to Be seated next to Gaston from Beauty and the Beast I think <laughs> there it is. You, d- you don't want to go near Gaston From Gigi He's, he's <laughs> all, he's, he's all <laughs> Depressed <laughs> and sad And about his wonderful <laughs> life In Paris
1: mm. Yeah I, I, I'm gonna just Play devil's advocate here Gaston from Beauty and the Beast does a whole hell a lot Of talking about himself and I feel like if I'm seated next to him at a dinner party, this guy's not going to shut up about all the stuff he's done, all the women he's been with, all the the hunting he's done, all the mountains he's climbed. And I just don't want to hear that at a dinner party. At least Gigi Gaston is bored and depressed, and he's going to shut the fuck up, you know. So maybe I can enjoy my night and not have to listen to the idiot next to me if I'm sitting next to him. <laughs> That's the you thing, know, Because these, I think we can agree, is neither of these guys are guys we're looking to hang out with in our so- old social circles. No,
0: what I learned is. If I'm ever in France, I don't want to hang out with Gaston. Yeah.
1: It's gonna be a bummer, both bummers. Great question, though. Good questions across the board from from the Twitterverse. We thank everyone for that, guys. I think it is time to do the awards. Are we ready, Zeta? Are you ready? Whew. Yes. Yeah, you know, we had we did kind of like a, a, an amended awards section in our our Oscar preview, which was which was fun. But this is you're gonna get the real uh, the real stuff here, the real uh, the full Monty here. So yes. uh, we'll start with MVP of Gigi. And Zita, since you're our, our guest from uh, from down under here, I would like you to, to, to go first here. Who is your MVP of Gigi?
2: Well, I would go with Cecil Beaton for the costume design. Mm. I think he makes the greatest contribution to the film. And I just say that because he's one individual that I can identify. All of the mise-en-scene and the cinematography I greatly admire, but I was just looking through IMDb and there are just so many people credited for work on all of those elements of the film that we would be here for an hour if I had to <laughs> walk through everybody who worked on that.
1: Well, so that's a great choice. A great choice. Uh, and this was uh, one of his three Oscars. So uh, I think My Fair Lady was another one mm-hmm. where he went on too. Yeah. So.
0: Good stuff. Joe, you're MVP at Gigi. So this is a historic moment in BPC history, here. Uh-oh. This is the first time an LVP has become an MVP. Wow. So... While Leslie Karen may have been not my greatest advised LVP, from you, you beat her I'm, down,
1: you beat beat her down pretty good. Yeah, really her dancing that. was
0: phenomenal, and the cuck should have been the LVP, but I stand by it. You were a little mean, a little bit, but I think she's the clear MVP here. I think if I think with someone
1: else in this role, this movie could be unwatchable. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I I think she's. She she glows on screen. I, I think she's really good. I mean, the only knock on her, I'd say, is the the dubbing situation. There that wasn't, wasn't her on choice. Her yeah, and she can sing. So right.
0: I think she. Every time she, I was more invested in every scene she was in than think in any scene she was not in, by far. And honestly, when the the first half bummed me, that first half hour really bummed me out. And. She really was the thing that pulled me back in and got me be like, okay, no, 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 this movie's gonna work. Like, I like her.
1: Her, her, um, her song where the, she sings about the Parisians and yeah, she's, uh, I don't understand, I don't understand Parisians. Parisians. I, the, I, that kind of that that little section there reminded me a little bit of Willy Wonka and Bianca with the give it to oh, me now. Yeah, that works. I wonder if the actress there uh, for who played Bianca watched Gigi and then took some some cues out on that. So that's a, very a really
0: good call. But I think. For her, for that, this was my easiest award.
1: Yeah, wow, okay. I'm up, MVP. Yes. I have to warn everyone. Uh-oh. Uh oh. There's a disclaimer coming here. <laughs> I have a controversial winner for this award here, uh, and I might get some heat. For oh, this. no. My MVP for Gigi is Maurice Chevalier, who plays Henri. Now, I, I, let me explain myself here because I, I realize that this is—this is—people are probably already canceling me or, sh- or shutting this off. He was so absurdly outrageous from step from from minute one in this thing, where I, I literally said out loud, "Oh my god!" Like he is such a monster that every time he came on screen, I perked up and said, "Oh my god, what is this guy going to say next?" And it, he just. He is he just spikes the punch bowl of this movie and I, I just I couldn't look away. It was like a it was like a train wreck that I couldn't look away from when and he goes Congratulations, you have your first suicide. Ooh, yeah. It's like what? Yeah, that was, dark. Like, dude, that was dark. that is as dark as it gets. Yeah, like That was um, dark. He just, every time he was on screen, and, and it had been long enough since I saw this movie, I didn't know what was gonna happen next, and I didn't know how bad it was gonna be, and most of the time, <laughs> it was worse than the last time. And that, the sort of value that that brought to my watch of this is that it really kept me engaged and entertained at every second of this because I'm <laughs> like, when's he gonna come on? What the hell is he gonna say next? So it is a very um, offbeat MVP, but I kind of likened to it to Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker. Um, I thought it was a very similar vibe there, where he was just an agent of of villainy and chaos Here's in this devil. one. And we all liked Batman, but uh, what's the Joker going to do next? So that, so there you go. There's my controversial MVP. What do you think about that one, Zita?
2: Well, I did. You hang up on
1: us after that? <laughs> She's like, nope, I'm not talking. She blocked us all on Twitter. <laughs> no, 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 no.
2: I definitely get the defense, and I do think it makes sense that you'll get this scene. Where Louis Jourdan is just being a bore and then Maurice Chevalier comes on and says some horrific thing <laughs> and yes, it, it does make it engaging. You go, what the hell they made this? They put this into a movie in nineteen. It's shocking.
1: Yeah, it's shocking. So he, he got he brought he brought a different kind of value that's normally brought to these movies here with that. So there you go. He he got it. Um, I want to say, too, it was a little charming in general that, like, some of the singers weren't the best singers. Like, I kind of like that. Like La I love La, La La Land has that joy. I yep. that's a movie that you love. Love that. I don't need everyone to be the best singer. Yeah, like it, it does kind of a natural vibe to it. Yeah. Because fun. it feels
0: something that could happen in the world. Not everyone's the best singer. Yeah. Um, so LVP.
1: Joey, I'm going to have you go first here for LVP. So I went with Annalisa. Who, I was really hoping my MVP would be your LVP. That's so yeah. uh, he is my second LVP. <laughs> All right, it was close. It was close. Um,
0: yeah, he did. Because I don't think he was charming enough to pull off everything. But yeah, yeah. Agent of Chaos. <laughs> so um, I, I, he was my LVP. But I think Annalisha was Alicia's my clear LVP. I think she was just irredeemable in her awfulness where I didn't even... End- Joy her on there, where at least with honoree he was doing different things, like when he was narrating and in and out of the world. I thought stuff like that was cool, so I couldn't actually give him the LVP. Where her, just nothing she did was like I was intrigued by, or it was just none of it. It was very inconsistent, and hmm. I, I just didn't like that at all. Hmm. Zita, your LVP for Gigi.
2: So I would go with Ellen J. Lerner. I think that the script is not great. And he really flattened out a story that could have had interesting nuances. I don't think it would ever be entirely politically correct from a modern standpoint, but he still could have made more of an effort to build up Gigi's personality or to give us a sense of how immoral this world is. And he doesn't seem to be willing to introduce any political commentary or critique of the way that this society functions.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that's I, fair. I totally support that. Uh, my LVP is Louis Jordan, playing Gaston. Uh, I thought he was the weakest performer of the bunch, as far as the main people went. Someone else could have done so much more with the time that he was given. Uh, I just... I think everybody else kind of played in, in their own world with the time they were given. He was the one that just... He lagged. He mm-hmm. lagged in with 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 the screen time, and he's just a. He was a downer for me. He was a bore, and was a ball. lot of time. Yes, yeah, a lot we of spent time. A, we spent too much time with yeah, the gold I agree. guest on there. I th- I th- that's So one. that's my LVP participation award. We throw in a little extra extra gold to there. Honestly, breaking the fourth wall. Ooh. I
0: loved how Henri did it. Where and they they, they did it in and out. Gaston did it in his song She's Not Thinking Me where he was when, when she was sitting next to him he was singing in his head when she walked away he was singing out loud I think how they were you know going between talking to the audience staying within the world and talking to self I thought it was really interesting so I thought that was that was cool filmmaking tricks that, that got me yeah yeah I like it participation awards Ida.
2: maybe I'll give it to Hermione Gingold she's there it, it's fine
1: <laughs> <laughs> she shows some at the end. I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Give her give her a little give her a little extra look. Alright, so I'm gonna go with the cinematographer, the director of photography, Joseph Ruttenberg. Nice. Uh really, really think that this is of a lot of the movies we've covered, this is one where I was kind of a little surprised at how strong the cinematography was. Wasn't ready for it, you know. I didn't think it was going to be at all. I yeah, I just thought it would be another kind of similar to, you know, even even a movie like An American in Paris is, it's just, you know, it's just not the main focus of what's right. going on there. And I thought it was really, really impressive. Like the shots of from the courtyard where you see the statues kind of jutting through, like a, a bunch of little <laughs> techniques that, that he used that uh, I, I really dug. Um, a, a pretty legendary cinematographer. I mean, he was nominated 10 times. He won four Oscars. The other Oscars along with Gigi were The Great Waltz, um, Mrs. Miniver, which is a Best Picture winner, and uh, somebody up there likes me. Other ones he was nominated for were Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, Gaslight, Julius Caesar, and Butterfield Eight. Uh, yeah, just uh, just uh, I thought he he deserved some a mention there.
0: Love that. I, I cinematography was top notch in this movie.
1: Since it's a musical, we'll go song of the movie, song of the movie. What was your favorite song here in this one? Gossip in
0: Maxim's liked it. I. Love that. I think all it was a very unique song. I think it was just very cool. I think it worked with the storytelling and it really I think it had a really nice payoff later on when he went back there with Gigi. I think it really worked overall. I dig it. I dig it. Zita,
1: song of the movie. Uh
2: the night they invented champagne, probably. Nice, I do think. Nice. Thank heaven for little girls probably has a better but it has a more catchy chorus, you could say. But I think the <laughs> performance aspect of The Night They Invented Champagne, in that scene they have motion. Leslie Caron doesn't really get to dance, but there's still more energy in that scene than there is in the presentation of most of the other songs.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. I'm going to go with that. I remember it well. Uh, I thought that that whole scene stood out for me. I'm going to jump the next category because it's also my scene of the movie. So we'll do scene in the movie next, but there's going to be joint awards for me, scene in the movie, and song in the movie. Um, I I really thought it was a tonal shift of the movie that we needed. It took you took two supporting problematic characters <laughs> and put them together. It's almost like I kind of viewed it like as like if you got if you ever got to see Jafar and Maleficent like sing a song together, like <laughs> like kind of like they took a break from terrorizing oh, yeah. their their kingdoms and they just sat down and remembered the romance that they had a lot of years back so I I um I enjoyed the two Batman villains kind of getting together and, and singing a song and it was a it was a fun song it was a, a lovely song and the coloring the shifting of the coloring in that scene too really cool and it was I always just like make note of the scenes that I'm looking forward to seeing as I do that that immediate rewatch after I've just seen it right and that I'd never mind you know Paying attention every second to, and when it comes up, I'm like, "God, oh, I dig this." Particularly in musicals, there's always that one song that you're that you're looking to get to, and that was it for me. Nice. So, uh, Joe, scene of the movie for you? Same as the song,
0: as the movie. That gossip scene with cool. Maxims. I I just loved every single thing about that. I think
1: it was just so effective and fun. Nice technical work there, and just a, a cool a cool gimmick that they used. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it.
2: Scene of the movie for you, Zita. Hmm. So I really had to think this one over because I'll admit that a lot of the movie did just I struggled to identify specific scenes that I loved because so much of it seemed to mix together and again that was related to the pacing issues where there wasn't a clear sense of structure but I I think I probably liked the scene where Gigi and Gaston go to the beach together I enjoyed mm, seeing mm. that where they're splashing around in the waves. I think that was perhaps the only scene where I was convinced that they had a connection, which the film mm. keeps insisting that they do have, and again you get to see some of the location. That's nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's that's
0: Were a you a fan note. of the bathing suits?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: Oh my. Um, okay, so uh, quote a movie, I think we gave... Art Joe, did you give yours? I did. Why did he
0: fly off the handle? He knew I'd answer him
1: back from Gigi. Nice, I like that. Um, Zita, did you have a quote of the movie?
2: Mm, perhaps, uh, and again, I'm just taking this from the song, so this is a lyric instead of being okay. a quote, but the, the horrific, those little eyes so helpless and appealing, I think oh. uh, that is oh. unforgettably... <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. It was like a, it was like oh. a um a reverse quote of the movie. I yeah. like that. It's like it's need to. I like line. the anti-quote. Yeah, the anti-quote. That's right. We may have to do an anti-quote. Yeah, section. I had an anti-quote.
0: Quote. The, I'd rather be miserable than miserable at you, and Zeta's yeah.
1: is way worse. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, I did want to take note as I had my Topes was my fun quote, but I also said I I dug this quote uh, from Grandma. It's always a pleasure to watch the rich enjoying the comforts of the poor. Oh, I like that. That was, yeah, a that, cool, was uh, line. that was a cool line there. Uh, they're living pretty well for a quote-unquote poor yeah, I family. Know. They're, by they're they're they won't doing... put them in the nitpick zone there. I, again, I'm not too familiar with 1900s friends, but Time Machine Recast take anyone from any time. Plug them into this movie. Zita, I'm super excited to hear what you have to say in this one. I'm going to let Joey go first, though. Joey always recasts his LBP. Joey, who are you putting into this one?
0: Yeah, so you know, I recast Annalisa as you said because well, Annalisa was terrible. <laughs> so we re- we need a super time machine for what I want to do. So Annalisa at the time, the actress was sixty-seven years old. Grace Kelly at sixty-seven, I think, would be so effective in that role. Wow! Now we need a super time machine because unfortunately she died. I was going to say, did that. Grace Kelly
1: live to sixty-seven? <laughs> she did not.
0: So we need a super time machine, but that's not <laughs> okay. within the rules. They didn't have to be alive. <laughs> True, That's, that's not, we've never run into that
1: before I don't think No,
0: but because I think most people have more tact But I just think it would be so perfect <laughs> I think that role With t- someone teach Teach someone about how to be t- Take out the young prostitute piece But how to be Grace And how to live in this higher echelon world Who's better than Grace Kelly I think she would be Phenomenal, Interesting, interesting. And she could be 51. We, we don't have to.
1: Who, who gives a shit about the age? Wow. Zito, who did you recast in this one?
2: So this might sound funny because, again, the characters are meant to be French, but I did think we're assuming that this is going to be a Hollywood production, and so I think they're always going to cast stars. So I thought that I would have liked to have seen a very young Shirley MacLaine as Gigi. Which I, I think oh, she could I love have been that. yeah, that's good. good. She was I she was very that. sort of girlish during her early career, and she did have a working relationship with Minelli. She starred in Some Came Running, which was made in the same year as Gigi, and I think she's a bit spunkier than Caron. So I think that might have introduced a, a good element to the characterization.
1: Wow, I, I love that, and um, I mean the last time we talked about her she was playing an Indian princess so I oh. think she can do French you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're not limiting her yeah it was it really hurt me from the inside that our audience's first introduction to Shirley MacLaine on the BBC airwaves was from around the world in 80 <laughs> days because yeah. she is I, I love love her in the apartment I think the apartment is a wonderful film and she is so good in it and I just have such a such a place in my heart for uh, for her Oscar award winning win in terms of endearment, and I think she's just so good in that too. So, um, yeah, great great choice there, Zita. Loved it. Um, so I also kind of bypassed the French thing too. Three for three. Yeah. So I just we're kind of we're, we're moving in. We're we're gonna we've we've had much more problematic casting here than 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 having a, a non French person come in and play a French person. So hear me out on this one. I'm, I'm recasting Gaston. Okay. All right. So we're getting Louis Jordan out of there. I went with Richard Gere. Okay, he's been in musicals before. He can sing a little bit. He did the the Chicago thing. We're going. Uh, you know, we're we're going. You know, maybe more of like a um, around uh, a Pretty Woman. Maybe you can even go a little earlier. Officer and a Gentleman. If you want to, I think he has the uh, indelible charm. He's that way can, more to can play in that role and if you even just look at the, his his thing in Chicago where you know bedazzle them or or you know razzle right. dazzle them you know right. where he's kind of just he makes you like him even though he's kind of a piece of shit I, I think that he could work in this one um what what do we think about that one Zita
2: Oh I think that's a good choice especially because Gear did have a habit of playing the older man in a lot of romantic comedies where you have pretty mm. woman where he's this much older businessman. And again, that's a version of the Pygmalion dynamic where he's teaching this lower-class prostitute how to act like a lady. And so, yeah, yeah, that would have been a good piece of typecasting.
1: So many... Pygmalion yeah. My Fair Lady ties for the Unbelievable. Thing. I love it. I love Richard Gear. That's a great call. Yeah, cool. Alright, so now we're gonna we're gonna do the we're gonna put this thing into the BPC calculator. We haven't done this in the last couple episodes because we've been doing the honorary episodes. So the one to five, we go performances, how the movie looks, how it's shot, how it's presented to the viewer. And then third is the story and the themes. I will start with you, Joe. We're gonna go performances here.
0: I think for the performances overall, I went with a three. I, you know, I, I really liked Leslie Caron in this. I, I'm also not actively hating anybody, mm-hmm. so I, but I think a three is where I landed
1: okay. pretty heavily. Sure. Uh, Zita, how about for you?
2: I might give it a two. I think Chevalier's performance beyond his character being very creepy is quite effective, but then that's hurt by the fact that Jourdan is so stiff in his role mm-hmm. and... I think some of the character actressing that some of the supporting players are putting forward is just a bit too much, so I don't think it entirely works.
1: Yeah, I um, I'm gonna agree with you, Zita. I also gave it a two. I I didn't really dislike too many of the performances here, but I also there's nothing here that was really close to an Academy nomination in a movie that swept. Mm-hmm all of its awards. You'd think that it would have something in there. It's just, everything was just kind of from a performance standpoint was just okay. It's a strong two. It could have easily been a three, but at the end of the day, I'm just leaning towards giving it a two. Next we have how the movie's shot, how it looks. Joey, you're up next here. So I want a four here.
0: I think the cinematography is top notch. I think the costume design is even better. Um, I don't think it's perfect because I do think there are sometimes where you know you're in and out of different things. But I, I think each location having its own character. I, I feel really comfortable with a four here.
2: Mm, I think I might also go with a four. I don't think it's perfect, but it does come close to being there. I think it's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna join the the fray here and join the crew and and throw down the four it is a really good looking film i mean the costume design we mentioned before the cinematography is way better than it has any business being we have to we haven't really kind of like brought up how big a deal it was for them to be filming in france and to show kind of authentic views of france and if we talked about an american in paris where everything was filmed on a hollywood lot and they just did the recreation of it right. we're here you know freed could could take them there and 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 actually do it in France, even though that there were some scenes that were done on those Hollywood lots and the beach that they used was Venice Beach in California. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable giving it a five. No. Uh, I think at the end of the day, if I look all the movies I gave a five at and see Gigi in there, I'm going to go, what? What was I drinking that <laughs> night? How, what was the alcohol percentage of that? I think Zita, you mentioned some things before is there's sometimes they're obviously shooting over to a, To a set piece and and some lighting issues here, there. Little stuff, but enough to not have to give it a five. Finally, we do stories, themes, how the story is told. Joe, take us home here. So, for this and my
0: most bizarre one through fives ever, I'm going a one. Okay. Because when the main themes are pedophilia and grooming, I (laughs) cannot in any world give it more than a one. (laughs) And I... I mean, my God, Zita, this is the fourth time you and I recorded, and each time I'm talking about pedophiles a lot. But you know, we can't give that more than a one.
1: <laughs> uh, what an uh, what an evening we have here. For us. <laughs> if you told me, if you told me twenty years ago the Braves wouldn't be in the World Series for twenty years, and and when they are, when they finally do, you'll be sitting around talking about Gigi. Oh, <laughs> uh, here we go, Zita, you're next. Here. So I think I probably stories household.
2: I I probably agree with you. I don't think they completely bungle it there is a story here at least i could say that i think it's slightly more successful than an american in paris in trying to fool you into thinking that it has a plot but Mm, that plot is horrific so you end up objecting to it on that level and just complete mishandling of themes like Child grooming and sexual abuse.
1: Yeah, so you're going, uh, what was the number you're giving it? A one. A one, okay. If memory serves me correct, I think I gave an American in Paris a one in the story category. You did. I gave it a two. And you kind of stole my thunder a little bit there, Zita, is that there is kind of some obvious improvements here from that to this in, in the two Minnelli projects. Because there is absolutely no relevant story to American Paris whatsoever. <laughs> it's a bunch of assholes dancing. That um, was they're great at dancing, so I, I like that aspect of it. But um, I, I am going to give this one a two, okay? And and I do think that there there are some deeper themes here that can be pulled out of this thing to make this movie enough for it to be worth your time to think about. And I mean, anytime you have to say a sentence that long to, to, just, to justify <laughs> it, a story is not good. I will admit that. Um, but I, I, I do think there's, as you said it, there is a story there. There's something there. And I think that this movie totally just matters on what lens you view it in. If you're going to fold your arms and and start with thank heaven for little girls and just go from there with that, you're going to have a bad time. It's just, it's just what it's going to be. But if you look at it in the lens of like, well, what, well, what about the fact that this is the social structure. This is the world that this poor girl has to live in. And what can she do to get her way out of it? And what can she do to fight her way out of it? And and what does she do throughout the course of the movie? And I think that that's there too. So I think there's enough to talk about here where I'm not gonna give it a one. That being said, the way that this was presented and told to the audience was not done well. And it's a dated best screenplay winner at best. That's the (laughs) nicest way to put that. Uh, so yeah, we're going, we're going a two there. So it is a two, four, two for me. Joey, you had a three, four, one, a three, four, one. And Zita, I believe you had a two, four, one. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, in a one to 92 world, Joe, I mean, we've done a bunch of these now, uh, Zita, you've seen them all. Where do you think this is going to end up in your, in your one to 93 or your, in the, in the grand scheme of all the best picture winners?
0: So I've seen enough where I think this would be in the seventies. Mhm. Like probably you know, higher. Listen. This is something if it comes on again, I would watch it again. You know, yeah. th- there's others like I never want to watch of Fire again.
1: I don't dislike this movie. I really no. don't. I want to say that. Like I don't dislike no. this movie. I, I mean, know people hate it. Twitter was going nuts on it. Right. I don't dislike Gigi. There's there are some best picture winners I dislike. Right. I I didn't like I said I had a I had a little bit of a false
0: start, but I was in just in not the right place. But as I've I've watched it twice since, I enjoyed it both times. I I didn't love it, but I liked it a lot. And if I'm if it's if it pops up on TCM, I would one hundred percent watch it again.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you're seventies, so bottom bottom twenty bottom twenty five. Yeah,
0: or right before that, but you know, not nothing to trash on. Like maybe depending on how some of the bad ones I haven't seen go, this, you know, moves up into the sixties, but I don't see this being higher than sixty-five. Yeah. Zita, how about you?
2: So for me, I could open up my ranking, but I think that would take a while. I think I recall putting it somewhere in the middle. It's definitely not in the top tier for me, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people have it in their bottom 10 or something. I'm definitely not there. I think it's probably in the upper half of the films that I consider to be mediocre. And I like it a lot more, if I'm honest, than something that's just sort of solid, something like The King's Speech, where... Yes, it's, it's well made, <laughs> I, but there's nothing memorable about it. At least this one, possibly for all the wrong reasons, does leave an impact. It is memorable. Yeah,
1: yeah I loved sitting here knowing that you were going to bury a movie. I didn't know which one you were going to pick. It was just uh, it's, that's it's always, always exciting. Cool. Yeah, that's that's really great. It's a classic Zeta move there. I love it. Uh, yeah, so again, I don't hate this movie. I don't think it's the worst movie that we've covered this season. Oh, no, I haven't. Um, there's two I, more behind it. Yeah, I, I think that it's going to... Uh, I don't like, I don't, I'm interested to see how these other guys are going to bury this thing and where they're going to put it, but it's better than some of the, some of these best picture winners that aren't so good. Uh, Listen though, I mean, be completely honest. I, Joey, I think that you nailed it in the seventies range, probably. I mean, maybe I'll, when I do the ultimate ranking, I'll look at those nine wins and see how kind of important it was at this time. And maybe that'll edge it out a little bit, but. It's probably in the back twenty to twenty five, I think ultimately. Right. Um, you're a little kinder to say that if it's on you'll turn it on again. I don't know that I will. Uh, I like Leslie Cameron uh, yeah. a lot. Well you've turned around <laughs> on big in in and yeah. she still sucks uh, in but Yeah, so I, I think 70, 70 to seventy five right. is fair. Yeah. yeah. But we'll we'll see. I would I wouldn't be shocked if we we're higher, I wouldn't be shocked if it we were lower. Before we do the uh, the other nominees, the section we always like to do here. We recommend if you watch Gigi, where do you go next? What do you want to do next? Palette cleanser, something completely opposite, something similar, hopefully not too similar. Um, uh, Joey, I'll let you go first for
0: recommends. So I went with Woody Allen's. No, I'm joking. Oh, boy. No. Um, so I went with a movie that actually, so it's a movie I like a great deal. Um, I kind of mentioned it on my top 10. You know, I think one of the fun things about the top 10 you started is that, you know, we get to talk about other movies. And It's a movie I love, it's musical, it's people coming together, and it's not rapey. A Star is Born, it's a big movie for me, but I feel like... Uh,
1: The 20... uh, The new one. The the new one, yeah, 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 Bradley Cooper.
0: Yep, big fan, and I I just think, like, all right, you know, get get something that just... After this, watch a really great movie with a really good male-female relationship that actually builds appropriately, and they take the time to let it actually be a story, and they are
1: both of consenting age. Zia, which which iteration of the Star is Born are your, is your favorite?
2: So I'm a big fan of the 1937 original. I think that's a really good distillation of all of the story's themes, and I know the 1954 version is probably the most popular, but I've always felt that that one in being a musical, gets away from some of the major thematic content and is just sort of an excuse for Judy Garland to put on a show. And I know a lot of people love that. But I think the 1937 version is much better at commenting on alcoholism and the, the blurred line between fantasy and reality when you're a famous person.
1: And who plays the lead female role in the 30s one?
2: Janet Gaynor.
1: Janet Gaynor, yes. Yeah, cool. Very nice. nice. Um, okay, uh so Zita, your recommend if you've just watched Z uh, if you just watch Gigi, where do you go next?
2: So I would recommend watching the 1938 adaptation of Pygmalion. Again, a lot of thematic links to Gigi, but I think this is a really solid film that actually does dive into a lot of the thematic content that is covered in the play that it's based on It really excoriates the main character for being a classist prig who thinks that he can just look down on lower class people and take advantage of them. It has a really, really strong, well-developed heroine who is complicated and charismatic and has a lot of personality and you've got a lot of great performances in it. I know Leslie Howard is primarily known for being the other guy in Gone with the Wind and he's the boring counterpoint to Hmm. Clark Gable, but he's really, really effective in this. And one of the things that he does that is really impressive is that you're meant to dislike his character and his behavior, but he does show you why some people are drawn to upper-class pricks in a way, because he is very eloquent he does have a way with words and so you like him even though you can see why he is emotionally manipulating this woman who's in his charge so I think it's a far more complex version of the story than you get in Gigi
1: mm, wow I like that a lot yeah. it's a movie I've seen in parts have not seen in front to end but uh, I, I you know I hate to divulge this right now but I kind of like it a little better than My Fair Lady Um, but um, it's uh, yeah that's a great recommend there I like that a lot Uh, Joe have you seen Big Yeah I love it Yeah, big fan I think Grant recently watched it yeah
0: I think so yeah I'm a big fan of that movie I think it's great yeah
1: um, all right, great recommends from both. All right, now I'm gonna I'm 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 going next here, and I have up next. I'm going to complete my trilogy of Clint Eastwood recommends here. Yes, I am staying somewhat close to the subject material in a in a degree here. So this, oh is a country, this is a this is all thing. Like I think if you look at my awards and stuff on paper, it's gonna be like, oh god, he's really went heel on this. But uh, I'm trying to explain everything properly. So the movie I picked is a, a 1973 film directed by Clint Eastwood. It's his first directorial film that he does not star in. He's oh, okay. behind the behind the lens here in this one only, uh, starring uh, William Holden and Kay Lens, and the movie is breezy. 1973. It's listen. It's not the greatest movie that you'll ever see, but it is just. It's an interesting take on an an older man and a younger girl uh, relationship. William Holden plays uh, a man in his you know basically a retired man who's um single man very content with his lifestyle you know not not looking to pursue any romantics really as he goes he encounters a younger woman played by kay lens who really they they hit it off or whatever and she she pulls him into a relationship with her that he is super reluctant about okay but she is a a a strong really independent person who knows what she wants and and kind of drives the drives the relationship between the two of them. It discusses all the complications that that brings and how he's like a little kind of ostracized by his friends a little bit by, you know, he's called, uh, he's he's judged by others as far as uh, as how that goes. And, and it's it's a very interesting watch. The movie never, at least in my opinion, I guess it doesn't cross the line in becoming very creepy. Okay, um, that's good. Because she's, you know, she's, a really a, a really great performance by Kaylin's. I believe it was her first one, and Holden does a nice job of kind of just being that go with the flow kind of guy who's just you know who's who's just in this world that he never asked for, never dreamed of, and just is kind of. It's an interesting love story. I I appreci- I appreciated watching. It. it was kind of taken back, but it was one I didn't think that I would enjoy. I think it's worth the watch. It's worth going out and check out. Breezy awesome. is that one. Uh, Zita, have you seen Breezy?
2: Yes, I have. I remember being concerned about the premise when you read about <laughs> old old man. As head. many of our
1: listeners are right now, by the way.
2: <laughs> and it was made in the seventies, so you do get a lot of films from that period with sort of questionable sexual politics but i do think it's better than something like gigi certainly in giving Mm. the female heroine a voice in giving her agency and in trying to point out all of the ways in which society could make a may december romance difficult
1: yes Yes. Yeah. Worth worth checking out again. Early Clint work. I think it comes out the same year as as High Plains Drifter came out the same year as High Plains Drifter. So two two releases for Clint that year. Busy year for him. Yeah. So there we go. There's our there are recommends. We have Joey. We have uh, Stars Born directed went by Bailey Cooper. Yep. Zeta. We have Pygmalion. And uh, I went with Breezy directed by Clint Eastwood. There. And that completes my trilogy of Clint Eastwood recommends. There. The Titanic. Right. I had um, Bridges of Madison County. And then for twins, I had The Rookie. And uh, here we have for this. Love it. Love it. So the uh, the other nominees here, we talk about the other movies that were up this year. And I think we're also going to talk about the best actresses. That's kind of your your expertise there, Zita. Just I'll kick it off to you first, Zita, if you want to just kind of talk about the, the women that were up that year and, and their performances and what you thought.
2: Yes, I think this was really one of those years where you notice this a lot, even now, the personal lives of specifically actors do tend to play a role in helping them to win an award or to get nominated. And I believe going into the award ceremony, a lot of people thought that Elizabeth Taylor had it locked down for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof because her husband, Mike Todd had tragically died in a plane Mm. crash and she was a grieving widow. And then everything changed and everybody turned against her when she stole Debbie Reynolds' husband, Eddie Fisher, and she was painted as the other woman. And a lot of people thought that she was going to be laughed out of Hollywood. So she was suddenly very unpopular, and then that left a lot of room open for other actresses to take her place as the frontrunner. And so Susan Hayward ends up winning for I Want to Live, And I think she's relatively, not unknown today, but she definitely doesn't have the celebrity status of somebody like Taylor. And she had been nominated four times previously, I believe. So this was one of those, oh, she's overdue. It was her Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant moment where, Mm -hmm. oh, she's been nominated so many times. She's such a hard worker. Let's give her an award and I think her biggest competition was Rosalind Russell in Auntie Mame, which, have either of you seen this film?
1: No, I don't
2: know. So it was a big deal at the time. I think it was the second highest grossing film of the year, which I think is sort of encouraging because she was an older woman, at least by Hollywood standards, and she was the lead in this big production, and it made so much money and it was based on a hit Broadway play, I believe, and she's just a a kooky aunt who takes in her nephew. And so it's difficult watching it today to fully get the appeal, but a lot of people thought she would win. So it's sort of a, a fascinating year where you have all of these legends getting nominated, and a lot of them miss out. Deborah Carr, this was one of many times where she got nominated, and couldn't quite secure a win so i think you can see why caron ends up missing out when the the competition is on that level and shirley McLean, of course gets her first nomination
1: and you're you're a big uh, deborah car-, car fan is that correct
2: yes yes
1: yeah we haven't we haven't uh to really discuss her yet? Yeah, we'll get her when we do. Um, From here to eternity, right? How does her performance in Separate Tables uh, go go for her in her the grand scheme of Deborah Carr?
2: Well, it's a strange film because she is sort of the co lead along with Rita Hayworth. You have these two different plot lines. Bert Lancaster, her scene partner in From Here to Eternity, with the famous kiss. He is also in it, but in a separate plot line and. It's very controversial today because it was adapted from a play in which David Niven's character is a gay man who is ostracized when his uh, sexual conquests are discovered and everybody is terribly homophobic. But in order to adapt it to the screen because of the Hays Code, they couldn't explicitly acknowledge that he was gay. So they decided Mm. to change it to him being somebody who sexually molests young woman in cinemas. And so oh, you no. can see how... Oh, that's, wow. You can see how that's terribly offensive where they're equating yeah, somebody just being gay, having consensual sex with other men with being a predator. So it's difficult to watch today from that perspective. But I think is quite good in it. It's a very small role for a lead nomination. So I think that's probably what disadvantaged her but she is playing a a nervous shy english girl which she did quite a lot and she's pretty good in it but i would say rita hayworth definitely stands out more than she does in the film
1: wow cool and that is our first uh, other nominee here joe if you want to just read the premise there of separate tables
0: yeah so separate tables the stories of several people are told as they stay at a seaside hotel in bournemouth which features dining at separate tables Uh, You know, like we said, Rita Hayworth, Deborah Kerr, David Nivens, Burt Lancaster, Wendy Hiller. um, Yeah, directed by Delbert Mann. And
1: I think Zita explained it way better than the synopsis is going to. Wendy Hiller's come up before. She was in uh, Man for All Seasons, right, Zita? Yes, and she
2: won for Separate Tables. And she had a very funny quote after winning where she went, This means cold hard cash for me, and I don't really care about winning awards. But if this helps me to make money, then that's great.
1: Yeah, cool. So separate Tales So separate tables was the one that I was going to watch because it's on. It's available on HBO Max. I I did want to watch one for this. Right. I'd already I've already seen one of them already, but I wanted to watch one. I was go- I had I had separate Tales all queued up, but then a different one came on uh, TCM, and that would be our Liz Taylor event here, and that's the one I did watch. Liz Taylor, Paul Newman, available on TCM on demand. How could I not? And that is. Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. Joe, yeah, Cat so on the Hot Tin Roof. Cat on Hot
0: Tin Roof. The only one of these I've seen, too. Brick is an alcoholic ex-football player who drinks his days away and resists the affections of his wife. A reunion with his terminal father jogs a host of memories and revelations for both father and son. So, the cast, I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, Paul Newman... Burl Ives, Jack Carson, Judith Anderson, directed by Richard Brooks. Judith Anderson from uh, uh, Rebecca fame, right? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic in Rebecca. I mean, we, t- we spoke glowingly about her. And, I mean,
1: Paul Newman is just always wonderful. Zita, I know you have kind of a complicated relationship with Elizabeth Taylor, I guess. You, you did that that uh, great series of episodes on on her movies. Uh, I was on one of them. I was on the, uh, the Ivanhoe episode. We, we chatted about that at 300 Passions. Uh, Joe, you did a, a, you did a 300 Passions episode with her in it, but I don't think she had a speaking role, right? Was no, that, she uh...
0: was a member of
1: the crowd in uh, Polvatis. Polvatis, that's right. So what uh, talk to us a little bit about Kattenhaten Roof and Elizabeth Taylor's performance there. Off, Out of the ring politics aside.
2: Yes, I think this was really big for her as a role. It was really seen as her being taken seriously as a dramatic actress for the first time, and she helped to sell it. It had a lot of box office appeal, at the time, and it's odd to watch it today because so many of the themes of the play are related to sexual frustration. And obviously, in the play, her husband is meant to be gay, so that explains mm. why he d- doesn't want to sleep with her. And then for the movie, they decided to sell it as ooh, sexy Elizabeth Taylor in her nightgown. So it's sort of strange that the themes of the play seem to go against. The way that the film was sold, and yes, she looks very pretty and everything, but it is bizarre you'll cut from a shot where you're clearly meant to be admiring her to Paul Newman sulking in the corner, and it doesn't quite work for me, but at the same time, i can I, I know that this performance is very highly acclaimed. her fans love this piece of work, she's very dramatic in this one, her character. Doesn't really act like any human being that you've ever met, but she is meant to be this almost otherworldly being.
1: So, uh, and again, another one where they kind of took a lot of the gay tones and sh- straightwashed mm. them. If that's what we want to say, I don't yeah, know if that's a term. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but now with this one, though, I can at least because this is one one I watch, I, I can at least like you know that the Paul Newman character. You don't know it, but you can surmise that he's gay. And, right. and, and I do like that it does allow the audience to do a little work on their own. It's a little bit of an excuse, I guess, to, to, to justify them just taking that aspect of it out. I know Tennessee Williams himself wasn't pleased about it, I, I, from what I understand. But I, I at least like the fact that there's some work for the audience to do there. And that you can interpret it in, in certain ways. I really enjoyed it. I, I like Elizabeth Taylor more than the average person, I would think. I mean, I really, she can't really go wrong by me. I, I love watching on screen. Paul Newman, multiply that by 10. I mean, listen, Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor in a movie, you're not, I, I watched the two of them play Mario and Luigi in the Super Mario Brothers. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm in every time. So that's, that's I love it. an easy sell for me. I just dug watching them on screen. You know, yeah, you Judith Anderson in the mix too, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's very Tennessee Williamsy. There's so I mean, well, it is yeah. it's a play. I mean, you're watching a play filmed with cameras, and I don't always love that in general. There are some exceptions. This was kind of one of those exceptions where I dug what I was doing, and just just like I I like *Streetcar and Desire* too. So it was it was a total thumbs up for me. I enjoyed my my time viewing it. So uh-huh. next next we have *Anti-Main*. An
0: orphan goes to live with his free-spirited aunt. Conflict ensues when the executor of his father's estate objects to the aunt's lifestyle. So this is starring Rosalind Russell, Forrest Tucker, Carol Brown, Fred Clark,
1: Roger Smith, Patrick Knowles, directed by Morton DaCosta. I know nothing of this one. I'm hearing this one for the first time. Uh, Walk us through this one here, Zita.
2: So it is basically what is described in that plot description where it's just a series of vignettes about this aunt being completely outrageous. She's the life of the party. She's this incredibly wealthy socialite who surrounds herself with very colorful figures. And she does have this nephew who's sort of a stuffed shirt who she brings into this life and she raises him and loves him very much. Then he gets engaged. And then, this is the strangest part of the film, it suddenly tries to become gentlemen's agreement for a moment where oh, Auntie way. Mame has this crusade against anti-Semitism, which, of course, I support that. I'm very, very on board <laughs> with that. But it did seem odd that this otherwise light insignificant fluffy comedy suddenly decided that no we have a message here and Auntie Mame this slightly ridiculous socialite is also a campaigner against anti-semitism it was a little odd it seems like it sort of took too much on its shoulders and I don't think it fully had the ability to support a message of that magnitude And it really is just a showcase for Rosalind Russell's talent. And I think it is, you talked about the fact that Cat on a Hot Tin Roof feels like a film's play. With Auntie Mame, it's even more so. Where you could almost have convinced me that I was watching a live show and they had just inserted cameras on the stage. They made no effort to turn it into something cinematic.
1: Yeah, that doesn't do it for me there on those. But
0: uh, one last one here, Joe. Yeah, so I've never heard of this one, but I am going to go and look for it. The Defiant Ones. Two escaped convicts chained together, white and black, must learn to get along in order to elude capture. So this is Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier, Theodore Bickle, Charles McGraw, Lon, Lon Chaney, King Donovan, and for some reason, Alfalfa directed by stanley kramer this movie actually looks really good as we were sitting here talking it, it really got me and um uh, it just looks like a very interesting movie and alfalfa you know, from going my way thing. alfalfa from going my way I the worst it. gang member of all <laughs> time uh, <laughs> but uh this movie looks cool and Uh, Definitely something I want to check out. Never seen before, but into it.
2: I believe this was seen as Gigi's biggest competition going into the night. And I do think it ended up winning best original screenplay. So it did triumph in some other categories. But it's definitely a very, very Stanley Kramer-ish movie. It has a message. It wants to let you know something. It's very didactic. And... It really sh- It throws that message at you in a way that I found unappealing, where you were talking about the fact that Cat on a Hot Tin Roof lets the audience figure some things out for themselves. It leaves you mm. with some room to draw your own conclusions. And The Defiant Ones doesn't do any of that. Minute one, you know exactly how you're supposed to feel. And I get that with an issue like racism, I'm not saying oh, yes, there's lots of uh, subtlety and racist people are fine. That's (laughs) definitely not what I'm arguing. But I just think it would have been better if he left some nuance open to the audience. And one of the big issues is that it has a very controversial ending, which a lot of African-American scholars have commented on and have suggested is a little problematic or have suggested that it panders to white audiences too much which is a fair criticism and i think it does feel like a product of its time that yes was addressing timely issues but it doesn't have as much staying power as some other films that address social issues from that period wow
1: okay yeah In- interesting it's t- Still, I mean, I love Sydney Poitier, so it's always Same. like checking those out. Again, it's nice to have someone on who has actually seen all these other nominees. Like so many times, it's just dead air here when we're doing these other. Well, nominees. No, this sounds interesting. Or I'm never going to watch that. Is that our yeah, I want to ask, uh, how would you rank those nominees there, Zita? Who would who would be your winner, and what would you? How would you rank the other ones?
2: So this is a little embarrassing, given the fact that we have criticized it so much, but I would mm-hmm. still give Gigi the win. Out of all of the nominees just Love it. You know, I have heard that <laughs> a, a lot
1: before. People who are just like, oh, Gigi, oh god, yeah. But I mean, it was gonna win and, and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just that it, Yeah, so okay, yeah, there you go. Awesome. So going with Gigi there. And uh, how would you I would, think you I the would
2: others? have Separate Tables second, uh Auntie Mame third, maybe, and then the Defiant Ones, and then Cash on a Hot Tin Roof last just because I feel like it really irons out the interesting details of the play yes it doesn't completely remove them but I think it misses the point of the play at a a lot of points and I I didn't like the performances as much as I felt I should have
1: Uh, I think we should also mention that and we kind of alluded to this a little earlier Vertigo came out this year that's probably the best movie of the year you'd think what are your thoughts on, on, on Vertigo Zita?
2: So obviously this one is a very big deal and it is one of those movies where people always talk about the fact that it wasn't acknowledged at the time. A lot of reviews were very tepid. It didn't achieve box office success. And I think part of its critical acclaim or part of the mystique that it has is related to the fact that it was unavailable for so many years. And then I believe it finally went into a re-release many decades later. So I think that's one of the reasons why critics really like to champion it because it was unrecognized at the time and people have finally acknowledged its genius. I will admit that I'm not one of its biggest fans, but I can definitely Mm. see why people go wild over it. And I think most of that is related to the fact that it's so atmospheric, it's so immersive. A lot of people talk about the cinematography And I just think it creates this feeling of unease and discomfort that you can't really find in many other thrillers from that period. And I know a lot of other people see it as a comment on the experience of being a director or being a filmmaker. And I'll admit, I don't fully understand that interpretation, but I can sort of see where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, I I, I dig Vertigo quite a bit. Uh, I, I think like a lot of Hitchcock movies it's better on rewatch because he takes his time with what he's doing and if you kind of have an idea of where he's going it's you know for a modern viewer it can be a little a little more palatable but uh, i think vertical's a uh, just a really colorful and enjoyable movie for for my taste but yeah. joe what, what do you big think big fan yeah.
0: i've seen it a bunch of times i yeah. love it each more each time
1: yeah good stuff i have to mention too what came out this year too which is one i watched uh, before this was um the horror of dracula i watched that a couple weeks ago oh was you did on HBO yeah. Max? yeah cool yeah that and that the right blob I you watched for, for the first
0: time this year. Yeah. But of
1: Dracula is interesting because you have, um, you have a, a, a couple actors in there who are relevant for this. Christopher Lee plays Dracula. Mm-hmm. You'll see him from the Lord of the Rings we right. mentioned before. Well, I will. Cushing, I don't know him. But, oh, right. Yeah. But uh, Peter Cushing plays... Van Helsing. Uh, yeah, he plays Van Helsing. And he's uh, uh, Tarkin in uh, Star Wars. He's like the... Uh, the, oh. the general who blows okay. up in the Death Star Never in the would have put that together. Who hopes so? Uh, cool. It's kind of like the first color adaptation of Dracula, and just the, their usage of blood was controversial for the time. And yeah. you watch it now, and it's pretty tame. But like, if you think about it at the time and what they were doing there, and it's uh, certainly m- way more bare bones Dracula than than Francis Ford Coppola's. <laughs> it, <was> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was fine. Yeah, I, I dug it, mm. but. Have you seen that one,
2: Zito? Yes, I have. And, oh, I also thought we should just briefly mention Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, which also frequently appears in lists of Mm. the greatest of all time. And that probably didn't succeed because it was a genre picture. But I know that's Mm. a big deal. And if you went to a lot of film fans, they would go, oh, how did Gigi beat the Orson Welles? Touch of Evil, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Very I mean, cool. The Blob was one. also this year, so Steve
1: McQueen. I don't think the Blob was <laughs> winning best picture. I don't think it was, <laughs>
0: but it's, it's a good one. And I think, you know, <laughs> Steve McQueen has his, isn't great always, but I, I like him in that one. Cool. All
1: right. Well, Zita, we did it. We finally had you on for a best picture Yay. winner. This is exciting stuff uh how was your experience do you have any closing thoughts here for us
2: oh it was fantastic i really enjoyed this and i think 1958 was a really good year to go through maybe not the best nominees in the world but definitely one of those years that really encapsulates the issues that the academy was having in the 50s
1: well it it was a pleasure having you on zita we appreciate you and all, all the work you do and and uh, all your interactions that you've done from the start, from the very, very first couple episodes, you know, when you were Catherine Short back in the day. But uh, you're back. (laughs) Um, Thanks again. And we'll, we'll plug the podcast again. How can people find you? How can people find the podcast?
2: So I'm on Twitter at Zeta underscore Short, and then the podcast at 300 Passions. And again, it's just available on most platforms for podcasts. And I also write for in Session Film and Jump Cut Online so you can read some of my criticism The
1: Excellent stuff and, and you do great work on all, all those platforms that you're on. We uh, are really honoured to have you on here and really appreciate you, uh, you giving us your time because you have uh, just a wealth of knowledge for us uh, movie dopes here. <laughs> or, uh, just a bunch of jabronis thing. just That's talking. Right. <laughs> That's right. Joe, um, closing thoughts here on Gigi?
0: Uh, yeah, um, this was awesome. A lot of fun. Loved being on Zeta's first full bpc episode and it was great Zita, you're always wonderful and i appreciate you kieran thank you so much and Gigi. i gotta say the redemption arc of leslie
1: karen is an all-timer i love it there it is i love it <laughs> hey guys i appreciate your time it was fun we sat around we had a couple beverages we talked about a truly great movie ah yes i remember it well or do I? <laughs> Thank you so much. Because we will see you all next time and next week. Take care.
2: We met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. We you were late. Ah, yes. I remember it well. We dined with friends. We dined alone. A tenor sang.